This is Tom from Third Rail Design Lab. And Crisp from Deeply Dapper. Crisp is right. I was going to say the sound this time would be... I don't know what the sound of fire is on a podcast, but uh, it would be like... <laughs> Ring the bell! <laughs> Fair enough. Release the... Kraken! I am not here to be Queen of the Ashes. I will not attack King's Landing. Chris, be Chris. You're not doing great, are you? <laughs> my allergies are killing me, my friend. Is there <laughs> you, something you text- that has decided to, to pollinate in the last day or two, and I've turned into <laughs> just a, a, snub, a sniveling mess. <laughs> you texted me earlier to warn me that you you sound like you've been inhaling a bunch of re- Westeroses. <laughs> like yeah. That's appropriate. Spoilers. <laughs> My head is full of dead ash. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we've had some, I mean, we've had our worst al- uh, um, allergy season on record here in California. And, and then just to confuse matters, it's now switched back to a pouring rain for a couple of days. And then the weed, <laughs> and then the weeds will fire up again. So, yeah, yeah, really. <laughs> like, oh yeah. <laughs> so, Mister Man, we're here to talk once again about a show that some people watch and others don't, called Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones the episode. What episode? Right, episode five. The bells. The bells. So the bells. Before we before we talk about this episode, we should talk about about the episode. And it's placed in our... So let's talk about our sponsor, Bouncy Mattress. (laughs) I was going to say (laughs) activated charcoal. No, um, (laughs) so we've reached, I think with this episode, we've reached uh, the peak point, it seems like, in the uh, sort of cultural dialogue about fans claiming ownership of the properties that they watch and being really invested in their not just complaining about things, but trying to actively, even <laughs> if it's futile, change the course of Are we their reality. That ludicrous uh, petition where like 300,000 people have signed it. I think it's, I mean, it's, it's hilarious and it's terrible, but I it's mean, the ridiculous. thing, the thing, the thing that is so frustrating about it is uh, if you, if you step back a bit, it's because people are so intensely, helpless and frustrated about the state of the world right now. And that's right. why this is so fucking important to everybody. The, <laughs> the idea that a show that most people really loved and then it sort of, I don't know, shit the bed in its last season is nothing new. And, right. we can, and we'll debate whether or not they have and to what degree it was their own fault and so forth later. But the idea that these people are so invested, we have more access to uh, sort of an audience with the internet the way it is today, and people are, yeah. are more enabled and sort of feel like they have this agency. But man, it's taken on a life of its own, and it seems like there's the voices that then push back and say, "Come on now!" I mean, there's a lot of them, right? Particularly among the industry, yeah. saying, "You don't get to." I mean, you can come, you can feel bad that it didn't go the way you wanted it in your head canon, but um, just don't watch a thing. Don't watch it and then complain about it constantly and then insist that someone goes and changes it to suit your taste. I mean, 
psychologically, it's very strange. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. My uh, Twitter feed, since I don't, I'm not very active, I'm mostly a, li- a reader on there. My Twitter feed is uh, very well populated by industry professionals and by sort of artists and cosplayers, particularly, uh, I guess, largely female. And so my feed has been 50% people freaking out about Game of Thrones and 50% of people freaking out about the handmaid's tale that is the United States right now. <laughs> right. And it's really, str- it's a strange mix of very, very, very strong emotions. And in some cases they dovetail the same, the, the Venn diagram crosses over and it's the same people, but you know, it's if it, looking at it from that perspective, as I was, I was doing so last night, I was thinking, you know, some of these same people are feeling, um, you know, assaulted by the, the politics of what's happening right now. Right. Very obviously. And, and understandably, and then at the same time, feeling betrayed or assaulted by their emotional investment in the show, and particularly of Daenerys, and the way right. that they, you know, they rode the, I guess, the, I guess they rode the narrative uh, that allowed us to think of her as a protagonist, even as she's doing all the things that lead up to this that would suggest this would happen. But anyway, so yeah, interesting cultural moment. Uh, And I don't think I've talked to anybody so far in the last few days that didn't have an extreme reaction to this episode. Yeah. So it was called The Bells. I want to know a thing. Before we even start, I want to know, coming into this, you felt very discouraged by the way they resolved the Night King situation in episode three, and then those lead up to four. It wasn't so much that they resolved the way they resolved it as the diminishment of its importance, the way they handled it. Like, the episode was great. It would have been an excellent second-to-last episode, and then they could have just never gone to King's Landing, and it would have been fun. (laughs) Well, that's right. That's right. It it was, what is this, what is the, what is the TV version of Game of Thrones about? Is it the, is it the, the force of nature of the Night King or is it the messy politics of the monarchy and they they seem to have, they seem to have circled back to get back to Martin's notes to them or whatever and if they had just doubled down on the Night King stuff that would have been perfectly fine because it's all fantasy right fantasy within yeah. the fantasy as far as the the book the book canon goes right right I don't know yeah I, I think that's quite valid but you were saying I mean you, you've been saying leading up to this that you know, you're watching and you want to be entertained, but you don't have high hopes that they'll pull it off. Yeah, yeah, that's accurate. And, and so, what was your what was your feeling as you went through this episode? Were you enjoying it, or or I mean, were you able to enjoy it, or were you frustrated by it, or what? I'm I'm certainly not upset the way a lot of other people on the internet is. Or I can't talk tonight. Uh, I. I, I would say I enjoyed about a solid 70% of the episode. Yeah. If not, slightly more. So, I mean, there's just a couple of little nitpicks I have personally. What about you? Well, uh, um, okay, but when you say that you enjoyed 70%, does that mean that you, when you were watching, there were scenes or, or arcs that you were enjoying and then there were sections that pulled you out of it? Or just... Correct. Okay, yeah. because I was trying to. Th- I've been thinking a lot about how I feel about it today versus how I felt about it that night, and just like with the the long night episode, I was able to be invested at the time. I didn't feel um, 
I didn't feel the the verisimilitude break right. Like I didn't feel like I pulled away and I'm on my couch going, "Fuck, why'd they do that?" Right. The way I felt about episode four. Okay. So, I mean, my problem with the way they staged four was that the between the pacing and the editing and the choice of how they did it, I was very aware of where I have a bunch of drunk scenes, then we have a bunch of sleeping together or romantic entanglement scenes, and then we have the second half, which is this adventure back end. I felt like I was seeing the construct of it more than I was experiencing the story of it. Um, and, and we talked about that last time, and and, and I, I might, may, maybe I'm a little unfair. But this time, at least, I... I wasn't as like in the moment as I was with the long the long night, but I was definitely engaged and enjoying it the way I would any sort of big action disaster type movie or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but with not as much of the sometimes with with those kinds of projects when we see them on screen, even if they're big and loud and and, and explodey, I'll find myself aware that I'm in a theater watching something big and loud and explodey. Do you know what I mean? And in this yeah. case, I felt I felt engaged enough that I was just following along with the story just fine. So my my issues were largely, um, I mean, they crept in while I was watching, thinking about ramifications and choices made. But um, as but it was again, it's about not the choices of the characters, but the choices of the creators, right? Right. So that's and that's kind of a funny thing about this. I feel like it's a funny thing about where we're at with some of these uh, emotional properties uh, that have so much embedded um, pressure on them to, p- to please that even people like us that are aware of how the sausage is made, um, right. it's hard not to separate, right? Yeah. People yeah, watching people so. watching Last Jedi who complain about Last Jedi half the time, they're complaining about choices made, not about the story. Right, and, and I feel and I feel that way about this the whole season. It's yeah, been about yeah, how did they do yeah, this and that to my characters. With very rare occasions, is it? Oh man, this looks awful, and the acting is terrible. It's entirely plot based complaints for me. Right, right, right. Um, uh, for the most part, this is another one that D and D wrote, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I believe so. And and then it was directed by what was his name? I always blank on it. Um, Sapochnik. Sapochnik, who's got a long pedigree for these types of episodes. And yeah, there's been some interviews talking about how he was doing callbacks to elements of other big uh, epic battle episodes that he had done. Everyone has been drawing all the parallels to the Lord of the Rings stuff, but um, you know he's he's doing callbacks to his own work and I think that that makes it feel a little bit more cyclical than I otherwise do um, but uh, anyway so it starts with a pretty mellow I kind of just kind of roll through the experience of the different characters but I mean it starts with this really great to me a really great tense setup mm-hmm. in the same way that the night the, the, the night the long night did right and I think that that's a really gr- I think that's a really successful tool in if if we think about these episodes as trying to capture the horror of war. What a great way to start it! I'm glad they didn't dive right in or have some character act- interaction to, to 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 bookend it. I, I like that it was just you know lining up all the resources and just preparing, and particularly yeah. that it was for the most part from the King's Landing side. That was really interesting. Yeah, it was. I. I thought it was an interesting way of showing 
it in a way that you don't get as often, definitely. Well, a lot of um, a lot of attention is being made to the fact that they made the whole episode a ground, you know, largely ground point of view by design, which is very, very effective. But I also felt like even the beginning of the episode was that way, looking at it from the perspective of all of these soldiers who are preparing themselves. Um, yeah. And it was also we've been complaining. I was complaining before that I couldn't figure out the the ever shifting geography of uh, King's Landing, <laughs> and <laughs> I started because of a couple of establishing shots. I started to get the sense that we're looking at the different. These scenes have been happening at the different sides of it, mm-hmm. and maybe that goes a little way, a little the way towards explain. I mean, there's definitely differences in how they've CGI'd King's Landing before and King's Landing today in terms of what's. Well, and I guess one thing I saw is that they actually rebuilt or purpose built a lot of the sets for this particular episode because they planned on destroying it and they wanted as much practical effects as humanly possible. And obviously they couldn't destroy whatever city it was they were using as a stand in for King's Landing. Yeah, somewhere like it's near Budapest. I don't remember exactly what it is. Yeah, it's it's in Europe. And they talked quite a bit about how that was a huge sum of money went into the production of the set. Um, right. And for a gear nerd like me, that's what I'd love to hear, right? Yeah. I want all the practical yeah. stuff like you do. Yeah, that's... It was definitely... I mean, it was definitely... Um, it was definitely noticeable. Yeah, yeah, I agree. A, a majority of practical effects happening. Yeah, the very music and visceral. set design and, every, and, like, all of that was just absolute top-notch this episode. The music was incredible. I mean, he... I, I actually think he does amazing every episode, but the, I do too. The, the tension music leading up to, and then in the second half when uh, everything goes pear shaped, it, mo- it moves into drums. Oh man! I mean, so great. So so thumbs up yeah. for the music. We're not going to yeah. criticize that. So you uh, uh, yeah. you you went into caveat mode when I asked if you enjoyed the episode. Oh, I did. <laughs> Uh, well, I mean, I, I guess what I was just saying was I, I, I did enjoy it at the time. But I also feel like I've been much more um, – it's kind of like with multiple versions of Batman on screen or whatever. Like I'm, I'm, very, I'm very forgiving of these things going in directions that I might not otherwise want them to and just try to take them for what they are. Projects right. like projects like Heckboy, which we haven't talked about yet, they I frustrate me. Yeah. yeah, they frustrate me because of missed potential that is so grievous that at the time I can't get it out of my head that uh, they 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 they, that's they did what they, what they did. did. Like, right. Yeah. yeah. But for the most part, if I if I can stay in the story and I'm not bored, um, you know, I can roll with it. So even though I, I so definitely my experience this whole season has been feeling like I'm one of those people that's coming in and watching select episodes but not hitting everyone. That is how it reads. Like, I feel like I missed two episodes in between the last one and this one, and that's kind of how the pacing has felt this whole time. I but agree. Since I've, once, I, once I turned my filter to treating it like anthology, mm-hmm. that it was bump, jumping forward in time, and it was making, basically just hitting beats, which is frankly a lot of what the way i write now anyway um i was able to enjoy it a lot more and just say i it kind of be there for the moment and uh so yeah no, i i thought it was pretty damn effective for what it was i did not have the negative um reaction the way i mean like everyone online seemed to have yeah i i i mean I, I linked to an interesting article on Twitter that a guy, or maybe it was Facebook, I don't remember which, but he talks about the the different writing styles. 
and how Martin is a gardener when he writes and he plants the characters. He knows where they need to end up, which is on the plate eventually kind of thing, but he lets Mm -hmm. them grow how they need to grow. And the problem is that D&D, without his garden to pick from, they've instead seen where the end mark is and they're like, all right, it's going to take this many episodes to tell this probably. We'll tell HBO we want six episodes to do it because we don't need more than that. And then I feel like they started making, they made last season, announced how many episodes this one was, then they started making it and they're like, oh, shit. You know, we probably could have used a couple more episodes, but too late. I like the the gardener idea. I think that that's... I also think that's how I write as well. I think that's a really good way of putting it. It's there's somewhat improvisational. Yeah, you, you, yeah. You sow the, I think you sow I, the seeds and then see where it goes. Yeah. yeah, and I do think that that's definitely a. It's a really like I've written both ways, and it's definitely like both ways are super viable, and it's interesting how different the results are. I agree. Uh, my perspective, for my writing, anyways, is that the gardener approach, as as you described it is the more enjoyable way of writing for the writer. In other words, writing as entertainment itself. Yeah. Improvisational writing or having a, a, an overarching structure and then saying, I'm going to fill it in as I go. Um, it's the same way I, I judge a role-playing game generally. It's, I, like, I like that freedom to just flow and enjoy myself as I go and enjoy the challenge. And, and it, admit, admittedly, it puts you in positions where you paint yourself into a corner sometimes. But right. the, the more uh, technically proficient, or I should say efficient way, of mapping everything out structurally and then filling in the meat, uh, I think it produces a different type of product, but it's nowhere near as enjoyable to do. Right. And I don't know what Martin's motivations are for his books, his writing of his books and his ego and how this all folds together, given how much pressure he's been in for so long and doesn't seem to be making much forward progress. But my sense has been for a long time that he does this because he wants to do it. So (laughs) that's why I don't think he's particularly uh, my perspective from the outside. It doesn't seem like he's particularly invested in committing himself to the demands and expectations of his fan base because he's like, I'm going to do what I want. Yeah. I mean, uh, he doesn't have to worry about money. And he can crank out a, a short story and sell enough money to make bills, I imagine. Yeah. So it's something where he's like, you know what? I uh, There's obviously a pressure to get this done eventually, but, you know, I'm going to go to New Mexico and go to a film festival for this weekend. Kind yeah. Of thing. Yeah. And, like, he, he just recently posted a thing about Internet rumors on his blog, his not a blog that he does. Right. Clarifying very specifically that he is – not done with six and seven and just holding out for the movies or for right. the TV series to be done. Right. And all of this, like all of those type of rumors that obviously I wish were true, but we're also unrealistic to be true. So, so, uh, you, you posited a few minutes ago that you, you wondered if, uh, Weiss and Benioff looked at the structure and said, this is where we need to land. This is what we need to do here's what we need from HBO. And then they, as they got into it, they realized that they were too compressed, but it was too late. I think that's, yeah. I've been wondering more and more. It, it kicked into high gear once it was announced that they had been tapped to start another project. But I've been wondering whether they are uh, did this to themselves because they wanted to get out of the Game of Thrones franchise based on 
a long-term contract with Disney. I really, I'm starting to suspect that that's part of what's happening here because when season seven was being uh, cooked and they talked about the truncated seventh and eighth seasons and how they were going to resolve the ending of the series and HBO saying they would rather have more from them and they've chosen to do this. It wasn't public yet that they had made the uh, deal with Disney. Right. But, but I don't think the deals with Disney happen overnight. I would suspect that they were talking with, uh, you know, they were talking with the Lucasfilm people for, you know, months and months and months prior to that. And right. I, I just think I know that there was the Confederate series that was supposedly happening that, that may or may not have been real and may or may not have been very serious for them. Yeah, yeah. I, I just think it's very, um, it's right in your face that they were cooking for quite a while. They have this huge burden of wrapping up this show and they have the freedom to do it at any pace with a significantly increased budget. They could really do anything they wanted. Oh yeah. And they any- chose to and they chose to truncate it and are now neck deep in a three movies a three movie arc that has now been and now is being just recently announced as being the next the next one in front of Ryan Johnson or sup- supposedly is according to some sources. So, I don't know. I I just See, my problem with it is if you are feeling that way and you're like, eh, kind of burn out on this. We've been working on it for a decade or whatever. Right. I, uh, why wouldn't you hire some other people to do the writing and take some of the responsibility then? Agreed. That have worked on the show for a decade. Uh, There's absolutely no reason for you to be like, oh, well, we'll just half-ass it and make it quick instead of saying, all right, but we're going to be a little more hands-off because we've got other projects on the pot. Like, it's just totally illogical to me, but... Well, yeah, and it reads reads or or it watches like shows that were told, like the kinds of shows that were told, this is all you have, and they try to wrap up what they can. (laughs) Right. Like those other shows you watch where it's like, they're just tr- they're just cruising along, and all of a sudden they're they're killed. <laughs> there's no there's absolutely no closure whatsoever. It does definitely watch like as if they were given a very limited number of episodes, and they try to cram as much in as they could rather than retooling to simplify the story. Which is the other thing. If they if they were locking themselves into a certain number of episodes, they could have maintained the type of characterization based stories and pacing of their better work and simplified the story and landed. They could have done that. And they didn't. Yeah, yeah. But that's but that's the thing. I just see. You said why wouldn't they just bring in more people to help? And I just wonder if it's a contractual thing that they needed to get themselves out of Game of Thrones in order to be fully invested in the Disney thing. Because as producers, they could, this thing could run for three more years with other people at the helm, and they could have just right. been c- collecting money. So I don't. I feel like there's other motivation, and like you said, it could have just been exhaustion, and they wanted out, but. I haven't really, I don't know, I haven't gotten that sense from their, I, I'm not convinced from their interviews that, that they're exhausted by the Game of Thrones. I was I was convinced by the way they talked that they were being, they were very cagey about basically saying, we need to stop doing Game of Thrones. <laughs> I don't know. Right. So, anyway, I, it, it is hard to, when you're watching the show not to think about the the construction of it for, for me and for you, and, and definitely as choices are made in the storyline, and also the con- construction of each of these episodes, it's hard not to think about um, the overall map and how they could have tweaked it a little bit to solve a lot of this um, pacing issue that bothers people. Yeah, yeah, totally. 
Um, so the other thing I was going to ask you quickly uh, on the side of Martin stuff, you having read all those books, right? Yes, I have. Do you think I... So what I was thinking about doing, I actually bought the first one, is I was thinking about trying to tackle them in audiobook format. Okay. And, and because I, I listened for once to a sample before I just pulled the trigger, and it mm-hmm. sounded like a pretty good uh, narrator, and I thought... It would be I really like the narrator personally, uh, Roy Detrice De or whatever his name is. Uh-huh. There are some people that take exception to the way he does. A few, sorry about that. Uh, a few of the voices, but I actually really like him. He's an older gentleman. He's got yes. he's got uh, he's really good at doing different accents and voices for the different characters, so you know who's talking. Because right. uh, George is one of those guys that doesn't use a ton of vocal identifiers when he's writing so it's not like Tyrion said, Tyrion said, Tyrion said and so having (laughs) somebody do a lot of different voices is really nice when you're listening to something like that. I really like them I would recommend them a lot Uh, I believe they got somebody else for one of the books which is really weird, it's kind of off-putting but I I think it's a great way to listen to them honestly um well, it, it was intriguing to me because I want to hear. I want to hear how he chooses to pronounce words. Yeah, and how it yeah. May, and I know that it's going to be quite a bit different than the show does, and different than I would interpret from the from the page. And you, know. you mean like the fact that every single person on the show pronounces Masandi's name different every single <laughs> yeah. time, even yeah. sometimes differently twice in the same interview. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I, I pronounce her twelve to fourteen pounds lighter. How about you? <laughs> <laughs> about eight pounds, isn't that how much a head weighs? Uh, that's a lot of hair, though. All right, so it's a lot of hair. One other thing, so I'm going to do that. I'm trying to wrap up a well, wrap up's not the word I would use. I'm, I'm working my way through um, my second attempt at a Star Wars audiobook, and this is I know we're <laughs> diverging right now, but I, I was on the Ahsoka book for a while, and I told you I couldn't. I think I told you right, I couldn't deal because they got the the voice actor for Ahsoka from the show to narrate the book. Yeah, so she's narrating it. episode. Oh my God. An hour and a half, I think. Yeah, it's probably. terrible. Okay, jerk. But, um, just saying. And, then, and now, and now I'm on, uh, and now I'm on Bloodline, which is a Leia based, uh, story from right after, uh, you know, right after, or some distance after Return of the Jedi. And it's another case where the narrator is okay. It's a female narrator. She's okay, but she has this real, um, sort of adventure tone to her voice, which annoys me, and uh, and also just the writing's not great. So anyway, I'm trying to get through because I'm a completist. I'm really trying to get through the book before I start um, the first of the of the Game of Thrones books. But anyway, right on. So one other thing about structure, uh, people were complaining about how Cersei's got nothing to do the season, and I do think that there's. Um, there's definitely a push away from her in King's Landing towards other things that are happening, but I do think she's had some things to do. But uh, a perspective that I read uh, fairly recently was that if you look at seven and eight as one long season, uh huh, and you and you tweak tweak the balance a little bit, it makes a lot more sense. It reads if you imagine that seven and eight together, it it flows a lot better than seven by itself and eight by itself. And I wonder if it was. Yeah, I wonder if it was. It, if it was. If it was like uh, bracketed that way, and the distance between the two, in terms of uh, broadcast time and production, is what is making it so disparate. Because I think if they would kept bouncing back, I would like how we had some episodes where we didn't go to King's Landing. It was just the North or whatever. You know, I like um, 
these geographically focused episodes. I I think if we kept bouncing back and forth just to give someone something to say or do, then it feels much more serialized, like sort of mainstream TV. So I'm not. I, I wasn't. I wasn't bothered by the fact that she was stewing in King's Landing and, and just preparing, and we weren't seeing her for a couple episodes. It didn't really didn't strike me as too um, imbalanced because the force of the narrative was to the north, and now it's focusing to the south. Just like yeah, we're not seeing fair. Sansa right now, you know. I, I do feel like I mean I did read an article where they added up her time on screen, yeah. and she's on there so little that uh, there by their estimate she makes about forty eight thousand dollars a minute of screen. Right, <laughs> right. So <laughs> you know that 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 is pretty telling that she's not on there a lot. But I do feel like sure. her influence and what she's doing shows on the screen a lot without her actually being there, which eh, is plus yeah. and minus. Yeah, but thinking about how they—I mean, from a plot standpoint—think about how they frame this as she got the throne and she's keeping it. She's in a defensive position, but sending out wings to do certain things, but primarily focusing her forces on in a defensive role. She's camping down for a siege that hasn't happened, and she's letting everybody else whittle themselves away on a on an external threat. From a from a flow standpoint, what it, what else, what are you going to do? Have her having long wine wine chats with Kyburn? I mean, I would like to have seen that, but <laughs> I mean, you know, she's staying put. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, and I mean, she really does spend a lot of time just staring out the window. But it's, I mean, it's she's not a character that's going to go down and dirty and do things and stuff. I w- honestly, I would have liked to have seen a little more conversation in this series in this last two seasons period like cut back so much on that where you would have entire episodes where there'd be one tangent where it's adventury and fighty and that travelly and then the the rest of the episode would be discussion and talking about things and i think that it would have sold danny's transition in this episode a lot better for people if they talked about it a lot more and and gave her more rope as a yes. character, yeah. to to show us this, I, I agree with you there. And also uh, with regards to Cersei, if you talked or you read what Lena Haiti says about the character, mm-hmm. it's more effective than what you saw. Like she yeah. describes, she describes this entire season as Cersei once again having pinned herself into an impossible position. She's fucked herself. She's screwed every ally. She's mm-hmm. burnt every bridge, and she's uh, surrounded herself to the point where she's completely isolated she's got nothing that she can do about it and she's in complete denial mm-hmm. because she can't accept it and right. it, it expresses um, her perception of the character is that the character is a, a royal fuck up literally <laughs> and, and she was so sure that what she was doing was going to work out because she was the right person for it and because she was doing it for her kids kind of thing that right. when it all goes off the rails it's hard to wrap your brain around that too right and and what we, reading that made me think that you know what we could have seen and would have benefited from was because I mean, she's a great actress and even her face acting in this one she does some pretty great shots pretty great yeah. stuff we could have really benefited for, from more signs of weakness from her more signs of doubt and mm-hmm. um, and sort of like maybe a little paranoia a little bit of anxiety and what we got was steel 
Yeah. I don't care. I'm gonna drink the wine enough so much that the tweet, like the tweets about her, were hilarious about that. You know, variations yeah. on the "This is fine," you know, where she's with the right. wine, you know, or like, <laughs> "Dear diary, today I had some." You know, I sat by the window and, the, you know, I, I I would have liked to have seen that. It was her most interesting part of, like, the last two years or whatever was in my mind was when she stepped away from the. When she was at the, the, the window, we're skipping ahead a bit, when she's at the window and she's like, you know, well, the Iron Fleet's going to fuck her one up. No, oh, they're dead. Yeah, you know, the whole thing yeah. where Kyburn's just giving her bad news after bad news trying to get her to, to evacuate. And she's like, no, no, what? You know, like that part yeah. where she starts to crack was my favorite part because she was finally having to acknowledge that, holy shit, you know, this is Yeah, real. you know, the, the thing that's really interesting to me about all of that is that I genuinely didn't expect Kyber to stay loyal to her. Hmm. I really thought that he would hit this point where he's like, well, shit, if she's not going to abandon, I'm out kind of thing. And he would just like, you would find him slinking out of town kind of thing. I didn't expect him to stay loyal and beside her the entire time. I was kind of surprised by that. Well, I, I was definitely reading in that scene that if she didn't go, he was a, he was going. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's kind of what right. I was thinking too. It, yeah. It's almost like, it's amazing that we even got a scene of him, uh, cautioning her to flee, you mostly imagine her being like, Kyburn, you know, release the yeah. Kraken, and then he's, and then yeah. there's, yeah. there's tumbleweeds. The yeah, there's just a, a bubbling over pot of potion and a couple of body parts on a table slowly rotting, and he's pieced out already. Well, those, those, uh, all the commentary about the little bits of trailer that people got and how people saw someone with a hood walking in one direction and then the Golden Army or the Lannister Army going the other direction, and is it Jamie uh-huh. or is it not? It was Jamie, but it's hyper, you know. <laughs> like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's just um, like peace. So uh, it was interesting the way we had this whole setup. Everybody's lined up, going back to some of the more traditional siege style imagery of of a period like this, as but without all of the siege engines that we had from the long night um, right? which I guess they just didn't have time to transport despite their teleporting powers I would have liked to have seen that so <laughs> that part of me is where I started to have those little things that were ticking in my head as I was watching and then especially afterwards so like that was one of the first things I remember thinking to myself was they're planning on sacking a, a heavily fortified the most heavily fortified uh, structural compound in Westeros other than the wall itself and mm-hmm. they're entirely relying on an aerial assault that thus far, according to the deus ex machina of the show, was completely ineffective. Yeah. Um, and so they show, they showed up with ground troops and no uh, and no siege engines. And I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't fathom that they didn't have siege engines with them. Yeah, it's it's I mean there's a thing I read online that talks about the fact that their headcanon for this is that the, where they're standing, and it looks like this deserted, like, yeah. desert area outside of her summer cottage, is that it looks like that because Cersei had stripped all of the trees and everything away in order to build the the fleet and the, the uh, giant crossbows and all of that, and also just did not give them anything to make siege engines out of. Right. And, well, right, and that would suggest they couldn't that. build them on site. Right. Right, but like, like the distance between the north and King's Landing to move siege engines, it would have taken months. 
Yeah. That makes so, sense. I mean, if you look at it, I can't, I can't even imagine like mountain passes with a massive catapult, whereas oh, you show true. up and yeah. cut down some trees, it would be a lot, it would be more time effective to get there and then it would to struggle for leagues with one, I think. I I think that makes a lot of sense. I'm saying that, and, and I agree with you on that. When you get into the logic of their of their journey, yes, how would they transport them? But the show has played so fast and loose with the movement of people up and down the map and the equipment and the resource, and then their their fortitude. They're injured and then they're running around like they're full speed. Other times they have plot armor, and then other times they don't. And there's so much about this season that's been about just create the structure of the of the action set piece that you want to make and then just do it. And I mean, right. nothing more so than dragons being um, <laughs> taken out or not taken out by a siege of rapid fire crossbows right. <laughs> versus in this episode. I mean, so, okay, let's get, get right into the plot armor because I couldn't even, I enjoyed it, but I couldn't not think about the fact that this was what we were expecting previously about Danny with dragons was that the dragon would be this weapon of mass destruction and you know, but they had set this. They had presented like there was this um, this viable defense against it with how the crossbows had been used effectively in the past, and particularly the heavily irrational Iron Fleet stuff from last episode. So you're mm-hmm. so you're coming into this one thinking, well, if we're going to play this game now, that the mechanics of this world are that from an from an aerial position, I can't see ground ground based attacks coming. Uh, I can't dodge stuff that is going at that speed and they can fire as fast and as many as they want and it's completely neutered the aerial attack of a dragon then for this to happen it was like a real flip it was really like someone, a different creator came in and said these are the tools I was given well this is how I would do it (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. so I I couldn't stop thinking about that as as, uh, Drogon was decimating the outer um, walls of King's Landing it was Mm -hmm. thrilling but it was very forced to me. Yeah, no, I, I I don't know if it was for me because I feel I feel like it wasn't so much that that was poorly handled, but that the previous episode was poorly handled, in my opinion. Like to yeah. me, the idea of her coming out of the sun and just dive bombing and going to town on it, coming up behind them, so they couldn't swivel those things fast enough. Yeah, they couldn't load as quick. They weren't as accurate. All of that to me is actually more accurate and legit than the previous. Oh, totally, totally, totally. My perspective on it was based on well, they just created these rules in the last episode, and now they're not following them anymore. You're right. It was more what we would expect to see this time. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. And those, and those uh, scorpions weren't even on a, a floating platform. <laughs> right. A floating, moving, <laughs> bouncing, shifting platform. And we didn't, even with, even as she sacked the iron fleet, which was really enjoyable, we didn't get to see, we didn't get to see what I wanted, right? Which is where the scorpion swivels around and then shoots Indiana Jones style, shoots the, <laughs> The mast of the ship, right? Takes out the mast. And, yeah, yeah. But, but we did get to see Euron have that wide eye, like, oh, fuck. <laughs> yeah. Which was good. Um, Euron with his magical swimming properties to get to the one spot he needs to be At later the, the in the exact episode. perfect time as well. Yes. Yeah, that yes. that was one of my complaints. Honestly, almost everything Jamie-related was my complaint about this episode. Uh-huh. Okay, so da- so Daenerys does this whole thing where she's swooping in, and I, I think they could have shown us a little bit more of them trying to get the dr- scorpions turned. And I felt like G- um, 
in terms of uh, direction and geography, I found the scene a little confusing, but I was okay with that because we're talking about aerial attacks in wartime and not supposed to know what's exactly going on. I, I was okay with right. that. But uh, one of the things I was struggling with was that, and I'm maybe I'm just nerding about this the wrong way, but how is it that the dragon fire is, I mean, does it create some sort of a concussive force all of a sudden? Because uh, I guess so. I mean, it has at least since the last few episodes. Well, uh, some scenes it just he just crisps people, and then other right. times, blasting with fire, like uh, the the gold the gold road day uh, episode, it was just sweeping along and just like a fi- like a toy like a flamethrower, right? Just sweeping. Well, along not, with- I mean, it was exploding those uh, wagons when it would hit them, though. Yeah, like the wagons. But this is like blowing apart. But we have fortified wall structures exploding in this episode. Yeah, non-stop. yeah, it's certainly like, amped up without a question. Yeah. I think I enjoyed I, it. It's extremely possible that Drogon just had a big crush on Masande, and he's just super pissed. <laughs> well, <laughs> so my kids are really, really, really into uh, Pokemon right now, right? So this has been like the last three months. It just kicked into high gear out of nowhere, and so we we sit around and draw Pokemon at at, at the table and stuff, and they're getting really excited. And I'm only on the perimeter of understanding this stuff, but um, I'm aware of the evolution of these creatures, right? That Pokemon evolve into a couple forms, and so it was in the back of my mind when Drogon was raiding King's Landing that it was like Drogon got one of those evolutionary upgrades and was the next level dragon, right? Because his power levels <laughs> right. were so much higher, and nothing was working on him, and he's like blasting the shit out of everything, so I don't know. Maybe he's you know, two episodes. Uh, maybe it's Highlander style, and when one dragon dies, the other one... <laughs> Gets the quickening and gets the, his extra power added to him. There could be only. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing I did. All right. So so then she perches, and there was this whole thing that. Okay, so wait a minute. So we had this whole thing with Tyrion, where he finds out that Jamie has been captured trying to get out of camp, which I liked because that was kind of realistic. Because I hate this thing where that people are going in and out like Bronn, right? Just wandering in and out right. of all these places. So I know it was plot driven, but that was interesting to me. Mm. It was also a good callback to Jamie being in chains, which was the first time that they gave us a sense of, uh, you know, some complexity to him beyond being a a, a uh, scenery chewing villain. Right? It was him being captured early seasons that created a chain of events that led to him being different than the way he was first presented. So it was interesting to see him in chains again. Um, but anyway, this whole this whole scheme of Tyrion that if I can get you in there and you convince her to surrender and flee, or just to flee, ring the bells, open the gates, and our army will know that the that she has surrendered and all these innocent people won't be killed. I thought it was a really touching effort from Tyrion to do that. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, he's desperately hoping against hope that he could somehow rein this back. And particularly after starting with the whole Varys sequence, his the stakes were so high for him. Not charred stakes, but... <laughs> oh, that was bad. Uh, Varys. Um, Mer stakes, right? That was the, the, the prevailing uh, fan conspiracy about Varys was that he was a merman, right? <laughs> That's such nonsense. <laughs> I don't even There's know. There's absolutely nothing to support that. It's like he he was never once shown near the water. <laughs> like, I know. He didn't even like take frequent baths or anything. It just makes absolutely I know. sense to me. <laughs> it's like Varys has a Walkman. That's the conspiracy theory. Yeah. 
But anyway, oh, going to, speak, speaking of that, um, that was pretty legit. You're waiting for her to pardon him, and then she doesn't. Um, and it was very touching that Tyrion admitted to him that he was the one that told her, and that little moment that they had together. Uh, and Varys's haunting comment that he hopes he's wrong. Um, I thought that was great. What a great setup to starting this episode. Um, I also liked, even though it was a trick of, uh, of uh, you know, it was sort of like tr- a trick of composition, but I absolutely loved Drogon coming out of the darkness above yeah. her head. I yeah. thought that was very... Com- one, one, of, uh, one of several very compelling um, scenes in terms of cinematography and how they, how they set it up. I absolutely love that. Um, but anyway, so Tyrion, on the face of that, risks everything... Um, risks what he's could be pretty certain is going to be his death sentence if it doesn't go well, um, and frees Jamie to uh, make an attempt at convincing Cersei to not let this end in a in a bloodbath. And immediately, I was thinking, this is another one of those deals where Jamie, the quote unquote stu- um, stupidest Lannister, is going to tell her this, mm-hmm. and she's going to say, "Sure, okay, I'm going to ring the bells, and then I'm going to attack him anyway with dragon <laughs> fire." That's what I thought this was going to, right? I did think it was interesting, uh, going back to Varys real quick, I thought it was interesting that uh, Tyrion said it was me to him the same way that uh, Olena did to Jaime. Totally. (laughs) It was me. Uh, Yeah, I'm so torn about the whole Jaime and Cersei thing. I just think that the whole character arc of Jamie has been completely undone by this last episode, and it makes no sense to me. Um, you know, I think I agree with you. I mean, well, for the most part, I agree with you, because they talk about how they were trying to convey that he he tried to change, but he's one of those tragic figures where... They're so uh, pulled by the the gravity of these bad decisions or these things and their guilt and whatever it is about their whole their whole baggage that they can't let themselves be happy and then they go down a dark path, which is usually relegated to the stories of the, you know, I'm going to do one last job and then I'll get out, <laughs> you know. Right. Because it was even framed like one of those kinds of movies, right? He has a, a quick little settle down with a probably more healthy romantic um Relationship, and he had made some amends with a couple of people that he had wronged. And at that point, especially given how much of that episode, episode two, yeah, felt like it was the redemption, setting up the redemption of Jamie. For him to run back to her felt like some editor, like it, it felt like when someone's writing a thing, and then a senior editor comes in and says, "Yeah, but the thing is, we want Jamie to be with Cersei at the end, and so that's what's going to happen." Well, and it, I think, it felt very disconnected. Yeah, and I, I, I really do think part of that is that they made him too likable because he's he yes. made it pretty clear in interviews, and Martin's made it clear in interviews that Jamie isn't a good guy. He throws little kids out windows for Christ's sake, and he's a killer. Mm-hmm. He's a fighter. He's a kingslayer, and I just think that they made the mistake of making him too sympathetic. And they fell victim to that, and they liked him and Brienne together so much. They're like, all right, let's make this happen and make people happy. And that's not how you should be writing things. I agree. They claim that they don't, 
they claim that they claim that they don't listen to the fans. But as uh, one in one uh, uh, another podcast someone mentioned, they've also D and D have mentioned the term Clegane Bowl, which is quite literally quite literally a fan based yes <laughs> piece of rhetoric. So you know they, um, and, you know the other thing about uh, Jamie being likable, there's this uh, there's this embedded premise in his character that while he was this raging. Uh, just an- not anarchist, but that he was just this arrogant, um, do whatever he wants, just gross, rich, powerful dickhead. Um, at the beginning of the series, there was this extra framework there that was brought in that oh, he also killed the Mad King and right. saved the realm and thousands and hundreds of thousands of people for his action. And while it was used at him early on as like, well, he's untrustworthy. You got to be careful with that guy because he'll kill a king, you know. There's always this sort of back end thing that that's floating around him, like, well, when push comes to shove, he's going to do, he'll he'll get out of his own way, and take a choice that is not the selfish choice. Right. And I, my sense is that the real narrative here is that he killed the Mad King because he knew it's he'll be taken. You know, he wasn't safe either. That. <laughs> it wasn't as altruistic because he's made repeated attempts to tell people I don't give a shit about the people (laughs) right and they're like oh no but you killed the mad king and you've done the right thing before and he's like and then this whole thing about him coming north to fight against the the dead was was narratively framed in the show like as if he was joining the good guys right but his reasons for doing it were Cersei, we got to fight the North or else it's going to sack King's Landing and kill us all. Cersei says, no, fuck him. And he's like, well, I'm going to go do it anyway because I'm protecting Cersei. Right. And that's something that was lost in his momentary um, feel-good moments by the fire and all that stuff. It was so fan... It was so... Um, it, it played into what fans wanted to see from him and not what his character is really about. And if he is supposed to be so gray that he's complicated, that he has both sides of that to him... They didn't convey that well either. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Now, uh, thinking of him and Cersei at the end, but also thinking somewhat of people's reaction to Daenerys and her change, I think another part of the problem is they cast very likable, charming, beautiful people in these roles. And I think, because I was recontextualizing some of this stuff, and I was imagining if Daenerys, first of all, if Daenerys wasn't, um, a charming actress and uh-huh. presented as a protagonist going on going forward. If it was a more of a, a neutral, less attractive, less charming person that they cast and and uh, and wrote and mm-hmm. looking at Cersei and Jamie, if they were not attractive to us mm-hmm. and charismatic to watch, would we have the same, um, you know, would it have felt the same? Like I was trying to imagine if Jamie was, you know, played by like, I don't know, the guy plays Brom, for example, which would have been right. awkward given their conflict. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like if if you if you strip away the the degree to which we invest in people who are aesthetically pleasing and charming when you're watching them, um, even when they're doing bad things, you you find ways in your mind of sort of justifying it, justifying it, right? Thinking around it, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. There's a lot of actresses I could imagine playing Cersei. Um, Imagine if, uh, for example, imagine if um, uh, Tilda Swindon was playing Cersei. Right. She's a really compelling actress. I, I, I find her riveting to watch. I love watching her. But one thing she does not do 
is automatically make you feel that she's the protagonist. She's able to right. play characters that feel unpleasant and characters who feel very pleasant. And that's, it's, it's her skills and actor and also some degree of her androgyny and her, the, the sort of the neutrality of how, how her appearance is. But if she was playing this role, I think that it would be a lot less um, romantic in the end, even if she was, you know, in the arms of a lover when she died. It wouldn't feel as gothic romancy to me. Yeah, I guess I get that. Yeah, I I feel like, uh, yeah, I just think that there's there's something inherent in television that you're picturing things because you're seeing them, as opposed to when you're reading a book and you can picture them based off of their actions. And so I do that's, think that's that, good. That, yeah, like it just transfers so much of that over, and like. I don't think the whole Sansa Tyrion thing is even in the cards in the books because Tyrion no. is a much less charming character in it. He's smart as hell, but he's missing half his nose. He's right. a lot more stunted and ugly. And it's the idea that him and Sansa get together in the books uh, from a book perspective is totally illogical and insane. But she's 10. <laughs> I mean, I would get together with Peter Dinklage. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he is absolutely um, the most for me. He, he is, he is the center of gravity in that show as far as being emotionally invested in watching his face and how much acting he does with his face. Um, yeah, I those... will be kind of surprised if he doesn't end up on the throne at the end, honestly. Uh, well, okay. We'll, we'll get to that. I will tell you this. Uh, I've seen him do this twice now in a couple of different episodes. Uh, he does this thing. It's this momentary exasperation slash despair. He's trying mm-hmm. to convince people, and they're not listening. He sees it going down a path, and you see him sort of, like, regroup a little bit, you know? That little, like, gasp. Uh-huh. And then redoubling his efforts. It's so powerful watching him do that. <laughs> uh, I also thought in, I think it was the 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 long the long night episode, but there was a yeah no that's what it was. It was when it was it wasn't that it was when whenever it was that he was on the boat and they had that great sequence where he was running back and forth as the boats being uh, yeah. So it was it was when the boats were being shot up, right? And he's running okay. back and forth as things are coming apart. And then he takes a jump off the boat. And oh, yeah. And the mask comes down. And it comes down on the camera. I was convinced that we were going to see a recovered Tyrion with half his face missing. I thought that was going to be right. how we were going to get there. And uh, and we didn't. <laughs> so yeah. No, he got he, more he handsome. Narrowly dodged it and then sat on top of the mast instead, apparently. <laughs> apparently so. Um, so anyway, so we get this whole thing where... We're getting this crowd view, and we're continuing to see how she's been bringing the population in, promising shelter. She gets them to a certain point and then closes the gate, so now they've just realized they're all a human shield. Right. And I thought that was pretty haunting, and I really enjoyed that Jamie had worked his way all the way in and was stuck in the mass of people. And we saw yeah. that twice. We saw it with Arya, too, where she's being overwhelmed by a surge, that, that, that wave of of flesh that she can't get yeah. can't get away from and gets trampled by but I love that he's just he's expecting his whole life he's expecting to either sneak through or walk through anything and he's trapped with all the commoners and he even waved his gold hand in the air to try to get the guard to see him I thought that was great yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was pathetic but it was great um, and so then he uses the, the secret backdoor uh, escape route that Tyrion set up for him 
as a means of trying to get to her, and that's how we have this whole convenient encounter with Euron. Right. Yeah. Which, a lot of the a lot of the well, online response to it was better than the episode in the first place. It doesn't make any sense to me. What was I, that? I'm, why he didn't just go that route in the first place instead of trying to get through the masses to King's Landing is, I mean, I'm sure that it's a very circuitous, it's a roundabout way to there. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but I, it seemed way more logical to just go ahead and go that way, but uh, whatever, Jamie. Well, I thought about that, but I was thinking that he's, he considers himself a Lannister. And so he thought he could show up with the gold hand and people would be like, oh, let him in. Open the gate. the way. I don't know that he knew. I don't know if he knew. I don't remember now in the timeline, but I don't know if he knew that she was absorbing the entirety of the population to surround the Red Keep and all that. When he left, he left to go fight in the north. It's hard to tell. I mean, I would presume that he would assume she would just purely from a safety standpoint be bringing in all the common folk but yeah it's hard to that's a i don't know i don't think that's a a logical so uh conclusion that she would do that i would think that he would imagine that she had he had heard that she had the golden army and he knew that she had the lannister forces and all this other stuff and he would just assume that she was armed for bear and he was going to walk right up show his credentials head right up to the keep and talk to her like he always did before so i could i could imagine why he would be stuck in this holy shit, there's this refugee crisis thing happening. I right. I got that. And so that's why I wouldn't have expected him to sneak in the back door because you don't sneak into the back door of your own house, right? I guess that's true. Uh, that said, the internet's version of the <laughs> Jamie scene is better than the scene by a, by a mile. I love all the references to... <laughs> Euron showing up and everyone having the same reaction with like this this fucking guy again or showing up like once again like he wandered in from another set <laughs> yeah not really I mean the only part of the and it was the worst type of uh, cinematic stage fighting uh, action piece that you get which is that nothing has any effect it's the uh-huh. invincible invincible bat fighters who are stabbing each other with the pointy end and it has no bearing on anything and then it does until it doesn't because right. I thought he was toast and it would have been and at that moment I was thinking fuck me how badass of them to kill Jamie in the back right? dying in the water dying in the dying on those rocks and not being able to get to her and I, I would have been so happy that. if she had found his body in the crypt next to a dragon skull having bled out trying to get to her and then she dies alone next to his corpse in the dungeon. See, okay. And I thought at that time I was convinced that we were going to see a, a shot, kind of like um, the most powerful. There's the most powerful scene to me in. Um, uh, what's the uh, what's the 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 Scottish film? You know the Scottish medieval film that, that. No, not that one. Like that's the uh, Scottish God, play. God damn it. Um, Oh, I just can't remember with uh, with uh... it's the movie with the guy and the other guy. Yeah, you you've turn, given me nothing to work us. with except Scottish. <laughs> Liam Neeson. Right Liam Neeson. You could turn a sow's ear into a silk purse. The whole Gary Oldman. Ah, oh, fuck. You talking about Rob Roy? Yes, and the most powerful scene in that movie to me was when. Uh, what's his name that you, that was originally cast as Marty McFly? He's Eric Stoltz. He's run. 
Yeah, and he had run away with the gold. He had the gold, and he and he got captured, or he was he got run down by a guillotine, like a not a guillotine, by a tripwire on his neck, and then he stashed the gold and hid it, so at least it wouldn't be found. And then he's okay. sitting by the tree. Oh, it wasn't. It was. Um, it was. Uh, Pulp Fiction guy. God damn it, I'm terrible with names today. That was the bad guy. Remember he was being the dandy? He was being that crazy dandy? I haven't seen Rob Roy in probably 20 years, so I <laughs> So, but I appreciate sure. this is a fever dream at this point. Sure, <laughs> I, I, I'll agree with what you're saying, Tom. This is all he looks, totally accurate. He, he looks at Eric Stoltz, who's who's basically been strangled by, by this, by this tripline, and he reaches up and he gets the gold that's out of frame, so it's above frame of the camera. He takes it down, so Eric Stoltz sees him do it, and is defeated. And then he walks away, and Eric, and Eric Stoltz is left to die there at the tree, completely failing. And I thought that we were going to have that kind of scene of Jamie sp- sprawled out with his hand reaching towards the keep, and mm-hmm. Euron walking away, and it would be like a, a, a pebble a pebble based. <laughs> view right and you see Euron's feet walking walking back towards the keep and Jamie stretched out and not able to do anything and then dying there I thought that was going to be a super powerful way to end that what they didn't do is that he instead uh, healed his wounds and ran off <laughs> yeah yeah apparently I mean the only good part of that scene to me was uh, was Euron saying that I you know I'm the one who killed Jamie Lannister <laughs> yeah <laughs> and that yeah, whole like- thing about what? Just no, like none of that had to happen at all. Like it was all just total nonsense. Like <laughs> Euron could have died in the explosion when his ship was destroyed. They could have shown that happen, and then Jamie could have made it to the beach and gotten inside with her, and then gotten trapped. He didn't even have to have that silly fight scene at all. It was just right, right, superfluous. Let's just carry the the Jamie Cersei thing through, and then and then go back to. I'm fine. The with sacking that. of the thing. Yeah, so I, you know, accepting this thing that maybe his wounds weren't as bad or he was whole, or he was mortally wounded, but holding it together. If you'll mm-hmm. accept that he'll get his way all the way in and she comes down to, in that one of the best scenes in the, in the, in the episode was stuff coming down from the ceiling and the cracking of the map on the floor, right? Yeah. Her, her, cool. her, 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 uh, yeah, her Seven Kingdoms map being destroyed. Um, even if you find them together in this environment what I didn't like I couldn't figure out why at the time I was frustrated but I realized soon after and it was they barricaded all the exits so there actually was no choice here Right. and I felt like what this, I didn't mind that they would die together I didn't mind even that Cersei wouldn't get the big send off that everybody was clamoring for because right. that seems consistent with the kinds of stories I like where you don't get the You'll get that satisfying end, and it's but very game, I, is a game of Thronesian, also. Absolutely, but what I didn't get is a willful act on either of their parts. She was able right. to break down and be vulnerable for the first, for you know, just be honest for the first time in forever and be human, which was great, good acting. And yes, they got to do this tw- this cheeky little twist on the the Valonqar prophecy, and you know, very clever, but. The fact that the, the all of the exits were walled off meant that there was no choice to this. I, right. I wanted either he's holding her down and then they die, or he can't move and drops dead and she has to, and she chooses to stay with him, or something. 
See, and what I would have liked to have seen, if the scene had to lay out the way it did, I would have liked to have seen them see that they're trapped, that there's no option. He's dying, so he yeah. he stabs her, kills her. Yeah. yeah, she dies, and then he dies next to her. The the whole crumbling right. ceiling collapsing and all that shit's kind of unnecessary if they're trapped. The idea of that that they're entombed amongst dragon skulls is really powerful, but they right. negate it by immediately having everything fall on top of them. Well, and, and it was one of those things where the the part of me, so one part of me, if it's the architect or not, I don't know. Well, one part of me was very satisfied that the that the keep was crumbling because there's no there's no. Um, support system in that in that type of architecture that would keep it from doing that when you start knocking blocks apart it's going to come apart it is going to collapse and i enjoyed that a huge source of peril for the people in the street as well as these characters in the crypt was the fact that shit was falling on them because that is the reality of disaster in an urban environment and i loved it everything that we saw related to to being killed by your own environment in this episode was fucking great. And especially I when you're talking narratively. about a town that is mostly stone instead of wood, too. Right. Because right. Cities, fire is a much bigger danger in a lot of ways. But this town is just made out of unmortared stone for the most part. So, yeah, that right. seemed right. very accurate to me. Everything is held together by everything else that's touching it. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then also, so what I'm saying is I thought that the fact that the crypt was collapsing and the fact that you would get all the dust coming down and then chunks of things coming down, that was all very powerful as a set dressing for me, for people to move through and mm-hmm. to be scared by and looking up. But narratively, it, having the collapse on them was too convenient. It was too, uh, it was so out of their hands. Yeah. It did not feel satisfying because there was no choice to it. Agreed. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I did appreciate the hound were when the hound convinced her to change her focus. Like there was, there was a, there was a symmetry to that that I appreciated. Who was standing there? The hound and Arya were standing in the same place, right? They, they crossed through that hall over that map to head up into the, up the stairwell. When he told her, this is your chance to turn around and, Right, they were on the map the there, well. but Jamie and Cersei yeah. were in the, the dungeon somewhere. They weren't near that map. Oh, did they, oh yeah, you're right. They continued on. That kind of weakens yeah, my argument. Yeah, Jamie never made it to the map there because the map was like in a like an open courtyard area where like remember the snow fell on it during the previous season and stuff. So I'm going to make a, a revision to my statement and say they look really similar, and that was cool. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you're absolutely right. Damn it. <laughs> there I go, giving them too much credit. Jeez, man. Uh, okay, fine. Um, all right, well, you want to talk a little bit about the Hound and Arya then? Sure. And the Hound looks super so, cool with his hood on. And I love how not? big he was compared to everybody else, too. How? You really oftentimes don't get the sense of how tall he is. He's a big yeah. man. Yeah. Like, back you in the day, was he was, you know, back when he had his, his Hound helm and all that stuff, he was, uh, you know, he was supposed to be very... Um, Foreboding. He's not mountain, but he's big. They're both big boys, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that was very cool. And the hood, the nature of the way the hood was formed, it had um, his look with the hood 
and her next to him, it was like Fafner and the Grey Mouse, right? Like a, oh, a yeah, whole, totally. It, yeah. it had this adventuring D&D vibe to it that I was just laughing at. I was like, well, that feels very much like someone's characters were just created. <laughs> yeah. Um, did you feel like his... Did you feel like his stopping and giving her that talk and trying to convince her to back away was in character? And did you did you like it as ter- in terms of the story structure? I think it fits the character that the Hound is now in particular. Mm-hmm. Because he, he went through that whole thing with the finding the dead bodies of the farmer and the daughter and all of that. And he realizes that vengeance and duty is important and that it's the most important thing to him. But he also knows that it made him who he is. And I think that he hopes that somehow Arya will escape that. I don't know if she can, frankly, but yeah, I feel that. Yeah. I think, I think they did that pretty well. I did too. I, um, I thought it was another interesting opportunity for a Stark to say thank you to someone that was very influential to them or had been powerful to them in a way that in, in each case, they said thank you to the, the other character. The character was impacted emotionally and visibly, but didn't respond. Ah, that was kind of a neat uh, book ending about it too. Um, yeah. Did you did you believe did you believe Maisie Williams's performance when she had that switch flipped in her head that she could actually step away from that murder bot vibe? I think so. I don't know that I didn't evaluate it that closely. To be honest, I probably would uh, if I rewatched it, but. To me, I think she did a great job. Was, yeah, yeah, I think she's excellent. Like, I think she can convey emotion better than half the other leads on the show, and they're all really good, so... Yeah, and um, just like in the Long Nights episode where it, you had the potential for 90 minutes of just numbing uh, explosive action and I have to break it up into sub-styles sub, uh, sub of storytelling to keep you interested, I liked in this one that it became this escape from Alcatraz kind of or not Alcatraz but you know it became a very different story for her which was she made the decision to turn around in the center of, <laughs> you know like in the center of this bedlam and now has to fight her way out when she went in with no expectation of having to get out again she just went right in thinking it was a one way trip and now trying to get out again she's in the worst possible place to get away to, to get away from and that whole her journey from there all the way winding her way back out into the street and then trying to and then getting buried with all the other stuff that was happening and seeing the the horrors of of, of war affecting all these people and her desperately trying to help people was um, I thought it was a pretty thrilling moment for her character in terms of her evolution that much um, that much skill and drive and uh, survival instinct but applied towards helping people um, instead of assassination, I guess. Yeah. So we have the, so we have the ringing of the bells, and yeah, which was I, the importance of that was really ludicrous to me. That might have been the only other thing I was genuinely annoyed with is that the Tell whole me. bell ringing to surrender thing has never come up ever in the series once before. And all of a sudden, all of the citizens in the entirety of King's Landing know to shout, Ring the bells! When there's a surrender. Hmm. 
it made absolutely no narrative sense to me. They just suddenly are like, you know what we could do? We could make these bells super important all of a sudden. Yeah. Like it made sense that that's what James or what Tyrion's signal to surrender was going to be and that they would be that. But the whole city shouting it throughout the streets in a te- game of telephone made absolutely no sense. Like yeah, it, it seemed it, easier to imagine that the keeps bell would ring for surrender, yeah, not yeah. all the bells in the city, right? It's just totally illogical to do like if they'd had something previously like when uh, Robert or when Baratheon took the throne and it had shot a scene of them, the Kingslayer killing the Mad King and them all ringing the bells or something like that. Yeah. That would at least have like some ties to it, but there is nothing about right. that. Right. It's like if you, if they wave the fuchsia flag, then you know, they've surrendered. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. My, my feeling about the, the use of the bells was less, that it was not um, earned in terms of any prior continuity in the story. Because, I mean, you know, I don't know. There's other things that come up for the first time. I just, what I saw it as was that the sound engineers and the producers or the writers had come to the conclusion that it would be the way they wanted a mechanism to show the breaking point for Daenerys. And they used, it was very specific that they used a polyphonic Thing with the bells, they rang bells with high tones and low tones and medium tones, and then they changed the 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 pacing of the bells. So it was like bats in the belfry, right? It was it sounded unsettling the way the bells were going. I think you know, you know, and I think that they used that as a as a symbolic gesture of the of that moment in her head where she's like, "Fucking, that's it, I'm out." And while I appreciate that from a production from a um, creator's standpoint, I think that's a really neat effect. Yeah, like you say, it would have been more earned if there had been a um, a a con- contextual <laughs> basis for using the bells, and and b if we had seen even a little bit more of her resistance to them saying, "Look, if they ring the bells, we're not going to kill everybody, right?" And she's like, mm. <laughs> "Right, you know, yeah. like that, I don't know." That look she exchanged with Grey Worm honestly made me think that they'd already had a discussion about that and that yeah. maybe it was something else. But the only time that that could have really happened was after he burnt the uh, Masandi's collar in the fire and right. John walked in immediately after that. Right. So I feel like if they'd added a little something there, there it would have worked better for me. All right. Well, so here's, here's the principal problem with the bells sequence for me. She's sitting on the she's sitting on the, the the battlement, and she's looking at the keep, and they ring the bells, and she's sitting there staring at. The, and I think that um, Amelia Clark is doing some great acting in this episode, and and in some previous ones. She's all by herself on top of a giant green piece of styrofoam in a different exactly city. that whole thing. If you strip it away and just imagine her sitting there and working her way through that series of rather complex emotional shifts in her mind and her emotions. It was pretty incredible to me, and then you see her staring at the thing, and you see her. You see, I didn't, I didn't interpret it as madness. I know they're going that way, but I don't think that cruelty and being unhinged emotionally from the trauma of what's been happening to you necessarily means madness. Madness is a very loose term, and I don't particularly like it. And I know see, that I would, a lot of, I, in my mind, I would prefer that she went mad than that she voluntarily chose to kill all of these. Well, animals. okay, so that's what I'm saying. She's sitting there on the battlement. She's staring at the keep. 
you see her eyes all, uh, and she's looking at it, and I see her making it personal in her mind. Like, she's like, it's not enough. Yeah. I'm not satisfied. Yeah. I will have satisfaction. I'm going to fucking go destroy that woman right now. Because she's looking at the keep, and the keep is a symbol of her of her legacy, of what she was taught since she was a little kid. That that was her birthright, and it had been taken from her family, and that right. this woman has usurped it, and she wants that payback. It's symbolic for her. So at that moment, I was completely prepared for her to go straight at the keep and attack, and that was in character for me. When she immediately turns and starts doing a scorched earth policy of doing the long sweeps of destroying the town and all the people, they did that for this horror effect of, well, she's over the edge, and it's horrible, and everything that Tyrion wanted to avoid has happened. But it made no sense to me. I could not wrap my head around why she would do that. And that's the part where that narrative fell apart for me. I couldn't, I couldn't in story decide why. And afterwards, I got something. But at the time, I couldn't decide why she would just start mowing through the people. Why would she give a shit? Why would she even bother? Even right. if she wanted to be mean, why would she bother? Yeah, it's it. I feel like that is their their largest narrative failing is that they didn't do enough beforehand to show how betrayed and futile and fearful she was to show that part of it. Like the whole, even just Masande and her having one conversation about how she had no one that she could rely on or talk to besides her before she was killed. Like just a little something there. And then maybe even like her replaying like audibly a conversation she had with Masande and then ending with her saying Dracaris or something like that. Right. Like showing that break in something besides just staring into Amelia Clark's eyeballs would have helped. <laughs> well, and the, so in retrospect, I was thinking about her narrative exchange where she's been told, don't sack the city. Don't stack. You don't have to sack the city to take the throne. Don't follow that instinct that you just have to just raid and just scorched earth just take the throne and they have established that she has had this um, innocence can suffer mentality and that you could just burn it all down mentality she's had that and I know they're tying to the Targaryen history and all this but there was very specifically stuff right up to this point where she had that moment with John and and she tried to connect with him and he couldn't pull his head out of his ass enough to fake it and (laughs) and she's like fear it is then right yeah. There was, they thought that they had established that she had made the point. I think that they thought that they had established that she had said, "Okay, then the only way I'm gonna," she had just said, "No one, no one cares for me here. No one supports me. I thought I was coming in to free Westeros from this tyrant the way I did, sort of, the the uh, the outer realm, or whatever it is. And no, everyone, no one's for me, and they all love you. I'll never have their support uh, unless I do it with fear." And then she has that little connect. He's like, but I love you or whatever. And then because it doesn't connect and she says, well, I guess it's fear. They felt like they were putting a pin in there and saying, well, she's just decided the only way she's going to stay on the throne is if she makes everyone so absolutely petrified to come near her that she's going to rule with that, that level of cruelty. Mm-hmm. But they didn't. They didn't make that connection. No, not. So not a- after the fact, I thought it. But at the time, I did not see that as the reason. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. And so then it became, it created a scenario where the the war is hell and chaos reigns component of it 
made sense to me. I like that aspect of the story where on the ground, John was like, oh, fuck, you know, this is all out of control. This is not what I thought was going to happen. I like that. It's very true to everything you hear about what really happens. And yeah. I'm thankful that I haven't experienced it. But from our perspective, it was just, it was a switch that I think that more than anything is what made people who were Daenerys lovers so upset. Because it yeah. really wasn't, I mean, I think there was structure to allow for her to make that decision, but they didn't convince, they didn't um, present it to the viewers in a way that would allow us to make sense of it at the time. Mm-hmm. So now it's Crazy Lady, right? Okay, Crazy Lady just uh, went unhinged and is killing everyone, and I don't, I, I actually didn't think that what she was doing was Crazy Lady. I thought it was deliberate. Yeah, and I'm, I was totally okay with it. I I think that... I think there's a difference between going mad and going mad, making mad choices, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And Raging. once you've Rage. made that choice, you've got to commit. I mean, <laughs> there's, there's no going back. I also thought it was really interesting that they showed, once they showed that switch, it never showed her again. It was Absolutely. just the dragon and it was just the chaos and destruction. <laughs> Because she had become she had become the the dragon, she had become the symbol of that the dragon was. Right. It was Yeah. And and like you say, I mean I think that she went into a kind of a berserker state. And I think that that is very true to stories of wartime as well. Right? Uh-huh. Yeah. M- making her the her humanity was lost um visually in the form of not seeing her anymore and just seeing the dragon. Mm-hmm. But that's that's a thing you hear about about the horrors of war that people get lost that you know it's not about people anymore that, that that they've lost their their connection with other humans and now it's just become you just become unhinged and unclipped from that reality and you're just you know death and destruction everywhere you lose your shit right. so uh, it, it does set up some serious seriously interesting um, prospects for the last episode but um, uh, one other thing let's talk about uh if you don't mind, let's 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 talk about Clegane Bowl a bit. Okay. So here's a here's a thing here's a thing that they've talked about for a long. They've implied is going to happen for a long time, but it's lived in the fan the fan side of things forever, and it was almost like this is in, inevitable that it's going to happen. Yeah. Did you did you believe it was going to happen? And if so, were you hoping that it was going to be a fake out and not really become a Clegane Bowl? Or what, what was your I, impression? I, I going assumed in? it was going to happen because there was nothing else for the Hound to do at that point. And I I mean, it was obvious that that's the only reason he was going back to King's Landing was to right. kill his brother. Well, sure. And, but whether they would allow it, it's sort of like Jamie dying on the pep on the beach, right? I thought, yeah. Fuck, wouldn't it be great if Hound and and uh, and the mountain never actually get to fight. See, I wouldn't have been as super happy about that. Actually, I don't know what they would have done. I think he's the only person that was capable of taking out the mountain. And I just, I think that had they skipped it, I would have. I think a lot of people would have been upset, but I would have. Been, I would have felt a little cheated, frankly. And I'm not that invested in the whole game bowl thing, but. I thought it was excellent. I'm super happy that they did it, and I think the way they shot it was amazing. Well, I thought so. I, so I thought it was going to be. I didn't think that. Yes, the Hound is the only person that could fight the mountain in theory, but what I what I thought it was going to be was that he was going to be uh, cheated the opportunity for vengeance. That the mountain was going to get taken out by the rubble or fall or something or get 
destroyed before he could get to him and that he would be stuck with the the realization that his need for revenge you know like you take that away from him and he's got nothing like it doesn't he doesn't feel better knowing that the hound is gone you know what i mean i thought i mean that the mountain was gone that's where i thought they were gonna go but anyway here we are post-apocalyptic nightmare <laughs> it was like an, again another movie right that just came yeah they put a lot of work into creating that environment, right? The stairway fell apart, and you have the open air and the fire and dragons overhead and all oh, this yeah, crazy. It was, it was absolutely gorgeous, and I love the the way Kyburn just gets crushed and thrown. I loved it. I loved it. It was and, my single favorite part of the whole episode was Kyburn's getting uh, meloned. <laughs> and that little scene right there between that and then the Hound just being like letting your grace walk by and just because he doesn't give a shit about her he's just like whatever i just thought that that was just so great she just like scurries past <laughs> everything about that that setup was fabulous i love that she's like stay with your queen and then he ignores her yeah and her, that it was like one of the last it was like i mean she's already now started to accept that she's fucked and she doesn't she's not in the power position she thought she was but right. she still thought she had these this personal bodyguard and then when he ignores her, I love that the, the level of vulnerability she had. The way that she slowly slips, kind of tiptoed through them and kept going was amazing. Yeah, it was so perfect. <laughs> like, I loved it. And Kyburn getting meloned was just like, I don't know. I just loved it. I love Kyburn. You know that. And so just that, that he went out that way, he went out by his own creation was really yeah. fun to me. Yeah, and they, like, there is nothing about that fight that I can complain about, but I would have liked to have seen one little shot at the end of the Hound looking down and seeing the fire, knowing yes. it was there, and voluntarily yes. jumping into it with Yes, it. yes, so thematically that was so huge to the scene. Yeah. It was a, uh, you know, the viewers understand it, but do, we would love to have seen that Hound is making that choice. Yes. Yeah, yes. where he looks down and is like, oh, fuck, oh well, kind of thing. The one part of this battle that I didn't like um, goes back to this, the Deus Ex Machina problem that we've had, which is that the armor on the show is either tinfoil mm -hmm. or armor. And it, and people people either can get injured or not get injured based on what the plot requires, but it's not internally consistent. So there was, I was willing to accept when he was stabbing the mountain and it wasn't stopping him. Uh huh. But what I didn't like was there was all these strikes where he was bouncing off his armor. Mm -hmm. Or he was, or you know, he was making making blows that were being knocked away by the armor itself, because we just saw him. The mountain's armor is no different than the other guard's armor. How it's do just you bigger. Know, though? <laughs> oh, because the bells are a brand new thing. Why well, he's got ma magic armor? I mean, what? well, I'm just saying, like it, he could easily carry something that was four times as thick as the other okay. guys. Maybe they're like, all right, he got Fair. pin by that holy man with his spike in a few episodes ago and why don't we make him like triple thick armor or something it's possible tom you know no that's true but we could have been given a scene where he picks up a helmet or, or like he picks up a piece of armor or something and it's like honk, you know yeah, like somebody they could have shown us his, that. his yeah. chest plates is too heavy or something but well and so and so thinking about the, that scene even as i was watching it i thought well there's no need for that we all know that the hound or that the mountain is not going to be thwarted by stabbies Right, right. So right. there's no need to have him also be a boss level Thanos type. Everything bounces off of him. We didn't need it to bounce off him. We we need. He was wearing armor 
in my view, he was wearing armor because he was still a guard in armor. Like it was that was kind of the joke right. to me was that he was an animated it, guard. I'm, I don't remember it bouncing off him as much as you are saying it is. So maybe I remember I'm remembering the scene differently. But I'm 100 percent right because I mean it did eventually decompose and fall apart. It did, but then <laughs> that was also fan service because he basically did the. The peel the ne- peel the thing off and expose the negligee, right? Zick! And then all the armor fell off. I don't know. Maybe. I just was like, well, we just had to get a, a scene of uh, of what's-his-name who plays the mountain all, all yoked out, and there we are. Yeah. What did, what did you, you think about his face? you got to see what he looks like. They've, they've hidden his... They've hidden the face of the, the slasher for, like, three seasons, Tom. We had to see the, the full display at some point here. Yeah, Okay. Now, what did you think about the, the the way they chose to portray his face? Was he was he undead enough for you? He was a little too cuddly looking still. I've always thought that the guy that plays the mountain, as much as I love him and how he's perfect for it, I think right. he's kind of cute. So Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I would have liked to have seen him a little rougher looking, maybe the skin peeling a little more or a little bit of bone peeking through or something. But eh, it I worked. was thinking about that. I was thinking about the design problem that they've got whites of varying types of whites that they've used over the show. And then they have the desiccated look of the walkers themselves and how that looks and what, how would you differentiate the mysterious undead uh, Clegane different from those technologies i guess and I, there is somewhere i was expecting more um they, they implied that the, that the flesh was putrid from the fact it was all like purple and right and stuff but i wanted to see more of that i wanted to see more of what looks like a dead body I well i would have see, liked to have yeah. seen like like all the other ones that you've named they're very desiccated and dry yes and- like yes. I would have liked to have seen the mountain a little more wet, yes. pussier, and like yes, something boobos and stuff. And yeah, and stuff. yeah. Right. Like I would have liked to see more of that boils and things. Just, just yeah, like, he's being his his flesh is dead, but it's being animated because that's kind of the impression. And by the time we get to these little moments in that scene where he stabs him in the eye and it doesn't do anything, and and you know you conclude that it's not like they've just reanimated his his. Uh, his living systems, but he's truly an undead thing that is, you know, if the brain is dead <laughs> and the heart yeah. is dead, it is not a, a live. It's not a post living creature. It's just a dead creature. Um, I, I felt like there was a, a, a potential there to show more damage to his body. This, the stab through the eye was, was cool and all, but I was expecting something like huge chunk of his flesh, like a big shot to his shoulder or something where, just huge amounts or a belly shot that just has a bunch of stuff fall out of it. Yeah. And then he's, and yeah. he's still going and he's still going. Cause that, yeah, I, I really yeah. imagine that there would be like pieces hacked off of him and yeah. a little more because this episode was super graphic. It was. And I would have expected a little more of that, but I don't, I don't know. I was happy with what I got from that. I think if they'd gone much more over the top, it wouldn't have, I, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty happy with that scene. Honestly, I just, it, it, yeah, I because of his size and because of the the pedigree of this and how much people have been anticipating it, it just felt very arcade and he felt like a big boss. And I was watching the red bar going down, down, then coming back up again and going down and coming back up at the top of the screen, you know, and I wanted to see more uh I wanted to see more damage done to his body and him still coming at him and that be the futility rather than just I can I can wail on him all day long and he's still this giant monster. But yeah, 
in the end, it was a very satisfying conclusion, if nothing else. Yeah. Um, and my, again, it gave me a Melon Kyburn, so I mean, I don't know. That was yep. so okay. So the, we haven't really talked too much about John in the street. Um, John's. That's because that's actually my least favorite part. Yeah, his, like his I, shell, I his shell shock. And the Euron was, no, I have no problem with John himself, because that's kind of how John does things. He either fights or he stares agape at things and is very confused. That's pretty much how he rolls. <laughs> yeah. But the fact that their Norsemen suddenly turned into fucking Dothraki, raping and killing and pillaging and yes. everything else makes absolutely no sense to me. There was no way of getting around. We talked last last time about how I felt that there were gender politics that 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 overlaid over the choices that the writers were making, and how it was hard for me to to, to separate. And you were saying that you didn't you didn't have that same experience. But in this case, that choice to me was absolutely a PC course correction because they didn't want the they didn't want the brown guys with the with the curved blades doing the raping and pillaging. See, I don't so think they that's, made it the white guys I, I don't feel like that's what that was at all. I just think that that was stupid writing that made absolutely no sense. I don't think they were like, you know, it's not politically correct if it's just the brown guys doing it because they didn't even show the Dothraki for the most part. It was just completely out of character for the Northmen to be doing that. It made no sense at all. Well, but they were definitely playing on I mean, they're definitely playing on I think I think actually an opposing view would be it's out of character that we haven't seen elements of that more in Westerosi soldiers because you definitely have impressions of that from some of those clans of the wildlings but mm-hmm. uh soldiers raping and pillaging has been a problem in our history in this century going back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and so the idea that that they were given the, you know, what we were just given the we were given the signal to go fucking hog wild, um, and that they would would re- revert to their basic instincts like that in that weird bloodlust of war. Um, to me, that was realistic and unsettling and very powerful for that reason. I just didn't like that they made a, a twist to make it only they would only show the white guys doing it, not everybody. But I didn't like it. But it didn't feel it didn't feel out of character to me. Mm. I just think I just think we had. Incredibly out of character, like I, it's I don't know. I that's I will not be sold on the idea that that was in character for the Northmen, who their entire eight season arc has been how the North remembers and that they are hmm. loyal and upright and honest and true, and they follow the the example that's, that okay. I'll accept that. I'll accept that. Um, but this army is more than just the north. It's more than just the the north, the, the northerners and the Dothraki. I mean, you had a, a lot of other people that had been rallied around. Yeah, there were the eunuchs as well. That's true. <laughs> okay. Well, all right. I guess. I guess. I guess. I guess. I understand your point that because of the implied virtue of the of the of the northerners, that you felt that was not out of character. I felt it made sense in showing something really brutal about what happens in war. And, and how it affects civilians, fine. and it and it affects civilians specifically. But I I just feel like the civilians had enough horror going on that there was no reason for the Northmen to become so over the top as far as that's concerned, like rampaging around and killing people or routing and like doing that yeah. end of things, taking it out on the Lannisters specifically. I would have been a hundred percent okay with right, but. I mean, 
brutalizing the Lannister army, yes. But even beyond right. the even beyond the rape stuff, which is very triggery and charged, just the idea that they were also mowing down civilians was very troubling. Yeah, that it, is definitely something that is uh, that's hard to wrap your head around in the in the in the construct of the story. I agree with you on that. It is something you hear about in war, but right, I, you know, I, for I mean, unfortunately, I feel like the the idea that these got that these male warriors in this state in this crazy state of being hypercharged and and completely over overloaded and in this in these violent urges and whatever else that they would do something like these these rapey attacks that to me is something that i can imagine happening to uh soldiers who wouldn't otherwise imagine they would do it which is not mm-hmm. to excuse it but i'm saying i can see a soldier who never would have imagined in a million years that they would ransack and rape someone um going so ape shit in battle that they devolve into that instinct but i'm not sure that I see that same person saying, well, I'm going to start now mowing down uh, villagers. But maybe that is true. Maybe they would. Maybe it's the exact same I mean, instinct. Maybe, I but this wasn't, like, this was literally them, like, okay, we've won, everything's good. Oh, wait, maybe not because Grey Worm killed a couple guys. Let's go crazy. I mean, right. it just, it, that switch made absolutely no sense in a lot of that there like that really bothered me like it was completely out of character for everything we've seen from the northmen before you know in that moment when gray worm saw her go forward and start sacking mm-hmm. and then he threw his spear and and then surged forward at that moment i thought we were going to see danny's danny's army people moving forward and then and the westerosi people stalling and being like holy shit I yeah. thought that was the moment that we collectively were on, were like, oh, we backed the wrong horse forward, and that all the 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 Westerosi would be like, oh fuck, John, what do we, do? John, 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 what do we do? I thought that's where the direction it was going to be. Yeah, I would have been John totally is. okay with that. And that was the way that they put John right in this episode, put John into a power position that he didn't want, which is everybody turning to him for help and saying, what do we do, John? Right. Senior ranking Westerosi on the ground, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So you're right, and 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 the fact that that was a missed opportunity is a little troubling. Uh, what do you think about the use of this uh, mother daughter as a thread to show the plight of the uh, the the innocent villager and Arya's futile attempts to save them? Because it was a little heavy episode, but it yeah. worked okay, I guess. It, it almost it almost felt like that um, that weird uh, family that Joss Whedon wrote into Justice League, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I, I it's don't know. super strange to me that they uh, apparently that was all shot like as one long sequence, and they decided to split it up. And I think that's an interesting little thing for them to have done, where they're like, "All right, this was shot as one long." awesome sequence with Ta'aria, but it's gone too long. We've got to split it up with other things. I think that's an interesting choice they made. Mm. I don't disagree with it because I think following her for that long would have been too long. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of uh, commentary online about the white horse and trying to apply too much symbolism to it. And, and, and I, and I think it was just used because it was visually arresting. It was gorgeous. It was absolutely stunningly gorgeous. The but way I it was agree. filmed was amazing. Yeah. 
But yeah, I agree completely. I don't think that it was intended as, oh, look, it's the pale horse and sat upon him as death and all of that nonsense. Right. I think it was just right. beautiful right. looking. And I think that was all that was there. I do think that there was some symbolism in the sense that here is a, here is a, I mean, we're talking about this uh, war becoming the force of nature, right? Mm-hmm. Daenerys is blasting things down the fire and the world is turning upside down and it's apocalyptic and it's the most base thing. It's the opposite of civilization. And then you have this, and so now here's a thing of nature, and it's calm. And there was something about that that I liked. There was something about the the purity of its color, and the idea that she was able to walk up to it, and that she and it was representing a choice, assuming that that's what happens in the next episode. But yeah, it, it was it yeah. was culminating in her choice to be like, I'm taking some ownership of this shit in a different direction, and I'm the fuck out. Um, which is how I, I read the scene. Like, if we don't see Arya in the next episode, the last episode, while some people will be very discouraged, I would not be opposed to it if she actually yeah. just... That's it. I mean, She's gone. I feel like the White Horse was a lot... was on the exact same path as... Like, all, there's all of these theories and conspiracies about why there was dragon fire in the right. second King's Landing. And I'm like, because there was dragon fire and it went off when it was lit on fire. It looked yeah. really cool, guys. That's all there that was, was just, to that. Yeah. It was technically interesting, and it was a fun little bon mot that people like us appreciated. Yeah, they a lot of fans watching it wouldn't have remembered it. All the caches of Dragonfire that were still under the city, there were just still some there, but it just looked really cool. That was the whole point of that. <laughs> right. Which is the same reason why you had the Iron Fleet hide behind a rock and then shoot the shit out of one dragon and somehow be effective. It was because it looked cool, not because it made any sense, not because it had to be that way. Right. I did realize that that scene, like, it would have worked for me so much better if it had just been, like, a barrage of, like, 40 of those bolts and one lucky one happened to hit the dragon instead of just three unerringly aimed bam, bam, bam. I think that would have worked way better for me. Well, and also they've established three or four times now that uh, it's great to have a dragon moving fast, but the bottom line is if you can't see, you can't see. And right. uh, they've had they've had they've had uh, storm encounters before that were hard to see. We had the the Night King create the the ice storm that made it impossible to see. And in that scene, all they had to do was have low fog cover, which would have been internally consistent with the world, and mm-hmm. then have them just come right out of the fog and blast her close range. That would have made yeah. sense. They wouldn't have been able to see her. She wouldn't have been able to see them. And then all of a sudden they were ready and they got her. Yeah, if it had been this really, like, ominous, creepy scene of them, like, coming through the mist and there's, like, a yeah. a lone bell ringing somewhere and then suddenly out of the mist the, the Kraken ships are there and they unleash 30 bolts at the one dragon, I would have had absolutely no problem with that. Right. Ambush. Yeah. Um, and in this episode, the use of coming coming from the sun downward and blinding everybody was for once a tactical action by Daenerys that we've been complaining we haven't seen anything of she hasn't used her dragons effectively as in a a military sense ever until now so that was satisfying I don't know who told her but you know yeah really (laughs) she's suddenly like oh you know what (laughs) all right well we've set up a final episode that's going to be um to some degree, unfortunately, predictable in the sense that it's going to be, well, now it's everybody against Daenerys. Right. 
but how? Uh, what are your thoughts? What do you think might happen, or where, where do you think this might be going? Um, not not necessarily in terms of just like the end game, but I mean, like what? What do you think that it's? I mean, what position is everybody in, and how do you think it's going to play out? Ah, man, that's a really hard pull on that because we really are talking about a lot of. I mean, it's it's obviously got to come down to John and Danny. That's yeah. just. I mean, they've built that from the the get go. John is the guy that doesn't ever want to be king, but everything keeps pushing him towards it. And Danny's the 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 gal that walks in and says, "Yo, I'm king." Let's make everything work to make it happen. And so it's the two different directions of that happening. And obviously, those two have to end up butting heads about it. Uh, where it goes well, from, I really don't know. I, I don't I don't see how... Well, no, okay, so number one, I don't see how there's any way that John could support her anymore. Right. That he's going right. to be... I, I can imagine a scenario where John, just kind of like the the tone that Tyrion has taken, I can see John attempting to reason with her one more time. I can see a scenario where he tries to plead with her to, I don't know what, yeah. <laughs> stop. I don't know what he would imagine, but I can see John not having a plan. <laughs> just yeah. being so heartbroken and so overwhelmed and so... Um, you know, so desperate that he would just go to her and try to talk. But, but from her perspective, she already said last episode, "I was betrayed by Sansa and John mm-hmm. and you and Varys." Right. So, I can really see that she's immediately gonna she's gonna take this position and immediately turn around and say, "Okay, now I want all these people on trial." And you're, I'm gonna execute right. all these other people. I'm gonna execute John. Obviously, he's a threat. If she's gonna burn civilians to make people scared enough of her to give her the throne. She's going to fucking definitely burden John, right? Yeah. And then I yeah, can see absolutely. And what I was imagining, here we go with the head cannon, but here's what I was imagining. And I've been pretty like uh 0 out of 10 on my predictions for this season, which is totally <laughs> Yeah, me too. Yeah. I was I was imagining that he will still be hanging on that he'll still be attempting to reason and whatever and mm-hmm. she's going to order that her troops go back north or say that she's going to jump on the dragon go north and take out Sansa and that's going to be the thing that finally trips him because that's going to be the thing where that's... he says it could be the thing that pushes him back to you know pushes his needle back to Stark you know like it really just yeah. symbolically it seems to make sense going back to season one and all See, this but I don't think his needle can be anywhere near her after seeing what she's done from the ground like, no, but can you see? I don't but think can you see him not doing anything? Needs it to happen. I don't think that. I think that as as of this moment right now, there's no way John can support Danny in any capacity. But I can imagine him t- trying to. T- that he thinks it's his. It's his duty, kind of like we thought Jamie was going to go and be like, "I have to take down Cersei one way or the other." I could see John feeling like I have to deal with. Danny, one way or the other, but trying to avoid having to strike her down, right? And then realizing that Sansa was next and being the, the, the thing that pushes him over. But you're right, maybe it doesn't even need to be that. But I feel like we're going to have some Sansa here because they broadcasted this all season long. Sansa's Danny's biggest threat. John's her threat to the right, to the heir to the, the I guess, the, to the, the rights to the throne. But mm-hmm. Sansa's the threat to her in terms of political issues. I guess. I, I don't feel like... 
of the entirety of what happened in the last episode, her being like, you know what? That person leagues and leagues to the north that got bitchy with me. She's next kind of thing. Like, to me, I don't... But she committed treason. She is as... She ties everything that has undermined her and led to this ultimate, um, you know, all bets are off way of taking the throne. She ties it all back to Sansa. Hmm. I don't know if I see it that way, but I, I can see how you come around to that. But to me, that's I feel like Sansa's little fish compared to all of the other betrayals she's had here. Um, I don't know. Maybe don't know. We'll, I'll be curious yeah. to see. We'll I, see. I, I feel like if she's going to take anybody out, she's going to take out Tyrion before that ever happens. And I don't see it getting to that point. Well, but she looks at Tyrion and she sees betrayal in the sense that he's not on, he, he does things that are not always in her interests. But she also looks at him as someone, she sees that he's someone who is trying to do what he thinks is the right thing and failing. Whereas mm-hmm. she sees and has described Sansa's behavior as machinations against her and manipulations and actually undermining. She said last episode, or no, she said in this episode. Was it this episode or last episode? Whatever the fuck it was. She I, said, Danny only had like seven lines in this entire episode. <laughs> so. so it was the end of last episode. She said, I was betrayed by Sansa, you know, and John. Sansa told John, John told, you know what I mean? Like she's pinning it right back on her and they've given us a lot of I didn't. This. I didn't read it that way. I may have to rewatch that scene, but to me that didn't seem... Like, the importance wasn't placed on Sansa. It was placed entirely on Varys and all that shit. Oh, but I see. Okay. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong right. there, but I, I misinterpreted that scene completely differently from you did. Me, me I'm talking cool. good right now, though. I'll say that much. I um, Personally, I think what is going to happen, and like you said, I've been wrong just as much as you have this entire season, but I think it's going to come down to Danny ordering Drogon to fire on Jon and Drogon refusing. Yeah, me too. Did we talk about that already? Because I'm right on the same page. I don't know if we have, but that's exactly how I think it's going to be. It's going to hit that point where Drogon's like, nah, I actually like this dude, and it wouldn't do any good anyway because he's fireproof, yo. (laughs) (laughs) Have we confirmed that? Uh, I've seen internet chatter about it, but... The only scene in the entire series where it's come up whether or not he's fireproof is the one scene where he fights a white the very first time. He picks up a lantern and throws it at him, and it seems to not burn his hand, but that's like it's very dismissive if that is something. So, yeah, it's 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 but never Targaryens been- are not Targaryens are not fireproof by nature, they're not supernatural right right no yeah that was a that's a dandy thing okay and we've never established or understood why she could be in the fire in the first place right yeah in the show canon was that tied to anything metaphysical like the witch or anything like was there any reason to justify her doing that or they just did it because she looked cool I, i don't think so anyway i know they were symbolically tying that she the Targaryens and she specifically, they are the dragons and all this. And, you know, with all these, the actions, she's becoming the dragon, but I, I'd never really understood that component of it. And I don't know that I would expect John to be fireproof, but maybe, 
Yeah. I'm more concerned about what, why is John still walking around since, uh, um, all, all of the, uh, you know, all of the effects of the Lord of light are gone. Right. They made a point the other episode of saying, and I don't know if it was just an atheist rant or what, but they made a point of, of Davos saying like, well, so where's the Lord of light now? You know? And we saw that we, and we saw Melisandre go off and, Take her, her, take her necklace off or whatever, and 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 fade away. So I've been wondering I, this whole time. I've been wondering if we're going to start seeing John starting to fall apart because he he was reanimated through her abilities. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. We haven't. So maybe that means nothing. But it's yeah. a thing. He was un, he was reanimated through Lord of Light powers. Right. That does make him different. Um, but I do like the idea that Drogon wouldn't wouldn't breathe on him because. He's, he's, he's bloodline to her, and he knows yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And think that they are they are the that same. That's a lot better than him being fireproof to me by a significant margin. Now dragons will eat. They will attack Targaryens, right? Like back in the history, didn't you have Targaryens fighting? Targaryens? Yeah, there were, yeah, dragon yeah. on dragon. Yeah, all sorts of that kind of thing. And okay, honestly, so. like in the books, Danny isn't fireproof. The only yeah. reason she survived the whole sacrifice thing and all of that is because. Uh, what's her name? The the witch was casting like all sorts of spells and black magic and everything during the sacrifice and the burning of Caldrogo, and that's that's when Danny, like she's not fireproof in the books at all. In fact, I think uh, Martin's okay. actually come out and said specifically that she is not fireproof in the books, which means okay. even like that whole thing with the call and all of that is likely made up just for the show. Oh, totally. But in show canon, she is, and they don't yeah. explain it. And it actually, right. it would be more. I think it would be more powerful if they had not done that. I understand that it was a symbolic gesture. But it's a cool scene, but yeah, it is sufficiently effective to have. This human can ride a can communicate with and ride a dragon as being significantly, you know, sufficiently awesome as a thing that makes her seem larger than life and superstitious and special. I think that yeah, powers. I think that's one of the things that is hurting them and making viewers more sure that she's destined to be the the best queen ever is that they've done all this mythological additions to her canon that. Yes. It, it turns her from a girl from the right timeline and the right bloodline that's really super sure of herself that also happens to have dragons into this person who's fireproof and prophesied and frees slaves. And, and yeah, it just it changes her character significantly into yeah. something that's easier to believe that she's destined to be a great ruler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's true. They really they, they they created something larger than life in her, but also they did it in the narrative of the show all this time. Is they right? She's made on paper a, a series of very bad decisions. She's proven to be ineffective at ruling and good at conquering <laughs> only when she has the biggest stick. And, right. You know, there's a lot about her that really doesn't hold up. But the the narrative focus has been to insist to us left and right that she was a protagonist. Mm-hmm. And I think that the mythology that you cre- that you talked about is is furthering that, yeah, making you yeah. feel like well she's got to be important because she's super powered, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think I, so. Do you still think um, I, we talked about this before? But do you think that we're going to end on the melting down of the throne and the and the uh, 
dissolving of the centralized rule and kind of being reduced back to seven separate kingdoms again? I think so. I think it'll be more of like a democratic council type thing. I'm, I'm less sure of my theory now that uh, Varys is dead, but yeah. as so speaking of him, who do you think he was sending letters to? I assume really he was sending question. it to the Citadel, but I don't know. Mm. Like I can't fathom that that's going to come into play that prominently in the next episode. Yeah, um, I well, I was kind of imagining that he was he was sending them to Dorne, only because. We've made we've had the mention of a new prince of Dorne, but we haven't seen him yeah. yet. Yeah, and, and you know, Dorne. Well, yeah, but I mean, supposedly, I mean, even though it was not utilized effectively in the show, supposedly that's a pretty pretty big kingdom. Yeah, right. So he's yeah. going to be sowing seeds to rivals, you know, forces that might be willing to rally with someone else instead of her. Right. But I don't know. I don't know. It's hard to imagine his. He, he was all focused on the idea that he has to get John on the throne, and that's what he's trying. Well, and, uh, yeah, and, and at the time of his death, like, I don't think he could have fathomed the idea that she would have raised to King's Landing. So, so right. discontent across the kingdom for somebody that peacefully takes the throne via surrender makes a lot more sense than sending out a couple of yes. post-it notes to people about the, the ruin that is the city. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, as we wrap up, I have a few other notes that I wrote down um, in the last couple of days. I we, we talked about how beautiful the horse sequence was. We talked about how cool symbolically it was that Cersei's map floor was being destroyed in that one scene. Um, we talked about how deliberate it was that there was no view of Danny, particularly from the peasants' point of view, but also from ours. Yeah. Um, the war is hell imagery. Um, one of the things that I thought was neat, it's not particularly unique observation, but in Danny's visions of her taking the throne we always interpret it as snow falling on her and it appears that it was ash falling on her yeah i like that despite her saying yeah despite her saying i'm not gonna i'm not gonna be whatever the queen of ashes or whatever and yes she is um (laughs) i thought that was a really neat detail um they've been uh they've been promoting a documentary on the filming of the last season and i guess it's going to air the week after next Um, I'm really interested in that because it looks like it's going to do a lot of it's going to have a lot of emphasis on the production and not just on you know sentimental shots of the actors being emotional at the table which I think they will but I think they're going to show a lot of production stuff and I'm really excited about that because A you know I nerd in that direction but also if we could say anything about the last two seasons it's that they got the money to do some really badass looking and sounding stuff totally even as the plot part of it falls apart so mm-hmm. i'm really looking forward for that perspective i've been reading or i've been listening to one podcast where they've been interviewing various members of the production side and you know there's a whole lot that goes into a lot of the decisions that were made um, oh yeah that i really delight in that kind of stuff and so it'll be neat that average average uh sort of viewers will be able to get more of a peek than just the little behind the scenes episode bits that they've been giving um, so, so yeah do you think varies was trying to poison danny that's a theory going around with the whole him asking the little girl if she'd eaten and that they'd try again later. Oh, that's a really, really, oh, I had not even thought of it. I, yeah, that's something that I somebody thought, mentioned offhandedly, and I was like, oh, shit. That could I be thought, 
I thought he was using her. I thought he was saying we're going to try to coax her out of her isolation. See, and that's what I initially thought, too, was it was more of a, oh, well, we're we're worried about her because she's not eating. But reinterpreting the scene and looking at it again, I could see it being Varys trying to poison Danny. The, do- the guards are looking at me. The guards are watching me. Well, they're supposed to watch you. But right. There's a reason. There should be no reason why, you know. And that adds an extra layer to Danny's breaking, too, if people that are actually trustworthy are trying to poison her. And it could be part of how this ends is if she has been poisoned, right? Right. Yeah, that's actually that that's really, really neat. I hadn't thought of it, and I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and I also love the death from beyond the grave. I love that, too. The other note that I, I wrote uh, while we were watching it, Lindsay mentioned it to me, but the the scene where Varys is killed is the exact same spot that Stannis started going off his kilter by burning the the statues and everything on Dragonstone there. Oh, that's so a really good point. Parallels that same scene there where he was, that's the exact same beach where he was burning the idols and saying that he was destined to become the king and all of that. So I thought that was a really interesting touch too. That is a really good point. And you know, the thing about the poisoning, that has a, that would be a great callback to Martell. Yes, it really right? would. Yeah. She voluntarily drank the poison and said, she drank the poison and it was like, you're going to die in the arms of, of uh, Cersei. And I, you know, tell her I did it. I want her to know, you know. Well, and all circles and back have... around to John Aaron being poisoned at the very beginning of the series. That's right. That's right. Holy shit, man. I'm digging on that. And then also, uh, you made me, you reminded me of another one of the beautiful moments, beautiful shot um, scenes in this episode that I absolutely have. I adored it so much that I paused it and looked at it for a while. And that is. Tyrion's last futile attempt to reason with Danny. Mm. He they have a side shot of him in Dragonstone, and he's he's got the big carved angry dragon behind him. Yeah, on the wall, and it's facing the other direction, and then he's facing to the left, and he's got that somber like like oh fuck scared face, and he's gonna try to talk to her, and. That imagery, the sim- the, sim- the symbolism in that scene was really fucking badass, but also just compositionally it looked rad as hell. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I have one other question. Um, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a gimme, I guess, in the way that they framed the show. But I was thinking uh, yesterday about how the entire narrative construct of this whole series has been about well, all of this stuff happened because the Mad King went mad and was so terrible and was <laughs> broken down and defeated. And then that set us up into this whole sequence of, of attempts to claim this power. But, I mean, there's no question that she is worse than Aaron, right? Like, she As has done what Aaron yeah. threatened to do, right? Yeah, I mean, Aaron, for the most part, uh, killed royals. And, like, right. lo- uh, royalty, uh, not royalty so much as, like, upper-class nobility. Uh, nobility? Nobility. Yes, those... Those guys. And, yeah, like, he never burnt an entire city of innocence. So. Well, and that's the thing. Like, they said that he, I mean, they use it as this this thing where, okay, he's he was increasingly becoming more and more paranoid. And he was starting to kill all the people that were working with him. And he was hearing things and seeing things. And then eventually decided he was going to burn the city to right. thwart attacks against him. And that's what finally 
was the the, the trigger. You know, it was the pivot. It was a pivot point for for his death. She and she talked constantly about I'm not the Mad King Aaron, and they've made all these. You know, this this whole thing has been well. Is she going? Is she going mad? Is it the Targaryen madness and all this other shit? But in the end, I, I don't even think her choice was madness so much as uh, battle rage and bitterness. But the point is, she did worse to her supposed people than he ever did at his peak, which led to his downfall in the first place and, and everything that made her who she was. So I right. think that just that choice was very telling people are outraged because they felt like it came out of left field and she's the bad guy now and why would she do this but that aspect of it I did appreciate I didn't like that she was killing that she was sacking the, the city for no reason mm-hmm. but thematically I liked that it put her in a position to be worse than Aegon or uh, yeah. Aaron Aaron uh, I don't even remember now King <laughs> yeah pre- previous Targaryen yeah okay yes all right um, okay so pretty eyes listen I come out thumb up on thumbs up on this episode. I did not have the the negative reaction. I didn't even have. I think I had more in the days that followed the long night. I had more that I was struggling with to rationalize, even though I loved it, than I had about yeah. this one. Yeah. So I mean, you know, I'm fine with it. I think a lot of people will be disappointed if Arya doesn't Arya doesn't show back up. There's a uh, there's there, a there's going to be a lot theory. of people super disappointed if Arya and Tormund and Brienne and Sansa like they've got to at least like cut <laughs> to them at some point yeah. here and show a scene. But Gendry and Pod and you know yeah, yeah. Davos is supposed to die. We haven't seen that. Making some some s'mores or something. Yeah, Davos could die of old age, I suppose, and and still be in that land because um, Melisandre said that they were both going to die here. Yeah. True. So I kept waiting to see he was going to be on a pike or something in this. In this. Although I thought that was uh, very she was talking to. Oh, you're right. God damn it! Medium content rules with me, man. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right. What's, you, what's uh, your red tentacle, though? That's the real question, Tom. What's my red tentacle, and what are my yeah. bl- what's my black octopus? Okay, so my red tentacle is the Kyburn the Kyburn melanin. Okay. No question. And uh, and then I think, okay, my black octopus, because mm-hmm. it was so on the nose, was the deliberate killing of the leader of the Golden Army's horse. Okay. Because it was so blatantly referential to movie making that, I mean, this has been a theme in the last 75 years of cinema, the whole... Uh, the concept of cinema verite and the whole idea that well we're going to take things seriously now we're going to show the we're going to show the horses die and that's going to be the main shift from the golden age to the modern age of realistic cinema and it was like it's just it's the symbol to filmmakers so to me it was just really on the nose that they would make a point of killing the horse and showing it and then it was only confusing later because the horse that Arya found looked a hell of a lot like his horse yeah it did yes so. it absolutely did yeah okay so. Yeah. Um, so that's just, my that's red tentacle, personally, aside from all of the really amazing stuff, my favorite little quiet touch that they did, because there's so much of this that I genuinely adore. But I think there's so much visual imagery between the Battle of the Hound and the Mountain and Arya's run through the city, and all of that's gorgeous. But I love the quiet simplicity of Varys taking his rings off. 
when he Fuck knows me, that was coming. great. Absolutely. Absolutely. The, um, at the time I was trying to figure out if there was, so at the time I thought he was taking it off because he seals the wax with it. Um, oh yeah. But, you, but, but you're right. I mean, it was mostly just, it was, well, <laughs> closing up shop for the last time. Yeah. It was the ritual, the ritual of it. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that. And then, uh, um, black octopus for me, it's gotta be, ah, it's got to be the timing you're on washing on shore just as he's walking around the corner. Like that just is, I can't get past how silly that is. Like, timing. Yeah. If, 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 even if it had just been, you're on in the tunnels, the same time as Jamie or something that would have mm-hmm. made more sense to me. Like Euron's lost amongst the dragon skulls. Cause he can't figure out how to get out. Something like that. He's like, yeah. I know there's a way in, but I don't know it kind of thing. That'd be fine. But yeah, it just didn't. That didn't work for me at all. That makes sense to me. So we have one more. It's, it's hard to believe at the time of this recording, we basically only have a few more days, and then we can see yeah. how the final end, the inevitable end, that almost feels how they're going to resolve it. And I'm really hoping that they're going to resolve it in a way that is thematically satisfying and has some character scenes, char- character moments that feel uh, earned, right? Yeah. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Uh, yeah. Do you, uh, Mr. Chris, do you have any planned plundering items that we can tell the people about to get excited about things that you're uh, I just started watching season three of um, Sneaky Pete on Amazon Prime. Oh, cool. I haven't started that yet. I still love that series. I think it's outrageous that you haven't watched any of it yet. It's on the queue. Uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> I've also um, I just I got the Hellboy board game a couple weeks ago and we yeah. played a couple of playthroughs of it and I'm loving it so far I frankly probably won't have time to play it for another month because I've got Phoenix then Denver then like two other shows for like the next four or five weeks straight oh, so yeah. I'm basically on the road but I'm loving it so far it's it's really it stays very true to the Minola vibe which is nice and I saw that you, uh, as you talked about before, I mean, you broke the ice on the painting. Yeah, I started painting. I've painted two minis right now. Uh, it's certainly what was the second part. one? I haven't posted it yet, but I posted uh, It's another character from the same game, the Shadows of Brimstone, that I've been painting. But I, I kind of picked that game because it's a fun game to play, and it's not going to be hurt by having sloppily painted miniatures. <laughs> ah, so those are not characters that came in the Hellboy set. No, those They're are not Hellboy game. ones. I actually plan on painting the Hellboy ones uh, with a little more of a cel-shaded style to them, yes. uh-huh. which is a different technique that I, I haven't even tried yet. So, no, this I was is... giving you all this credit for like, this guy... He's gonna. He's all excited about his 100 uh, miniatures in the Hellboy game, and he's gonna start out by painting Villager Number Six. Like, I was like yeah, no, no, I, <laughs> I am starting by painting Villager Number Six from a different age. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> don't start with Hellboy, man. If you haven't painted minis for 20 years, you don't start with your favorite character. <laughs> you start uh, with drunk, drunk ombre number seven. <laughs> legit. And, um, okay, so my planned plundering items are, just like last week, um, I'm still trying to get to Barry. Um, 
But I decided to do a last minute redirect and instead and this You're not ties in to talk about Star Wars this episode, just no. say it. No. Oh, do you want me to tell you all about how great uh, Clone no, Wars and uh, Rebels, Rebels are? The audiobook or anything else this time. <laughs> so the thing about the audiobook. So uh, my my uh, I, I veered at the last minute. I was about to fire up Barry, and then at the last minute, I decided I was going to go back. And so this ties into my Rumfield recommendation. I started uh, the most recent season of Legion, which I hadn't gotten to yet. Mm-hmm. So I'm three episodes in, and I'm really enjoying it so far. Um, cool. So, I mean, another one where it's like, I don't even try not to think about the production of that while I'm watching it, because it's so psychedelic, and it's so herky-jerky, and it makes no sense. It doesn't matter. Like, I don't care. I'm just watching it because I'm enjoying the imagery. It's like I watch Wes Anderson stuff. Like, I don't, you know, story doesn't even have to make sense. I'm just watching a series of vignettes that are interesting, and that's definitely how I follow Legion. Um, And I'm really enjoying some of the the, the the total loose unit literally choices that they've made on some of the things in the first few episodes so mm-hmm. um, and right out of the gate they did another one of their, their dance offs that was fucking hilarious so anyway nice. um, do you have any rum fueled things I guess your Hellboy game is a rum fueled yeah Hellboy is definitely a recommendation I want to do a little more of a thorough playthrough with it before I like Strong, but if you like like dungeon crawler games and you like Hellboy, it's definitely worth picking up. Uh, I have the like the big deluxe Kickstarter version that's got all this extra stuff with it. But even just the the standard tabletop version of it's super fun. Um, I really don't. I I've been so like slammed with nonsense beyond that right now that I haven't really done anything else. But yeah, I I definitely recommend that. And I've I've only seen the first two episodes of the new season of Sneaky Pete. But if you haven't seen the first two, they're excellent. It's all con man, heisty type stuff. And uh, I can't remember the main character's name now because I have spaced on it. Uh, what is his name? You mean the actor? Uh, Rabisi, yeah. Rabi- yeah, Giovanni Rabisi. Giovanni, yeah. He's excellent in it. He's so good. He's so really I've, good in everything. Yeah, he really is. I love him. He's a he's a great actor. Now, did but, you see Bosch? Did you see Bosch? I think it's I've still on. I've seen the first right? couple seasons of Bosch, and it's okay. excellent too. Does it have a similar vibe or a different vibe? Uh, it's it's a lot more procedural police. Oh, okay. It's, it's interesting. I mean, he's a LAPD detective, so he's solving murders. The murders are really interesting. They've got some nice twists to them. I love the the Bosch series of books by Michael Connelly, so uh, okay. I really enjoy it. But I also really like Titus Welliver a lot. Um, I think you would like Sneaky Pete a lot more than Bosch. Okay, all right. I'll put it. I'll put it higher up in my infinite queue. Yes. One other item I have for plan plundering, which is not that interesting, um, and I'll probably give you a report on it later, just because. But um, I am going to be seeing Detective Pikachu this weekend with. <laughs> you know that looks intriguing to me. I I still haven't seen Endgame. That's been on my to do list for weeks now. But I just. Finding time to get to the theater has been impossible lately, so... I don't know how you're going to... You can't get into the con season. You can't get into this next series of con. I, it's going to get spoiled for me, and that it is what it is at this point. I, there's nothing I can do about it, so... Uh, even, like the, even, like, the night of one of the shows. you got to do it. I just don't have time, man. I wish at I night, could. At night, you're not... You're not like, it's four hours, Tom. It's not four hours. It's it's, it's three, three hours, hours and twelve and minutes. Five minutes, not <laughs> counting trailers. 
Last time I went to the theater, there were 37 minutes of trailers. (laughs) What I'm saying is, you don't have the bed covered with bag and boarding task prints like I do. You You saw the picture of my garage I sent you. Yeah. I'm saying (laughs) at, at the show, like after you do the setup the first night or something, you go see it. Tom. Just because I'm not there with you and all of the bagging and boarding things doesn't mean I don't have things I'm supposed to be doing at shows. <laughs> Please, which is watching Endgame. We are literally ordering 175 sheets of stickers to be printed and picked up in Phoenix for us to cut in the hotel room because we have all of that that isn't going to get done before we leave. Well, that's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> they frown on me using the guillotine cutter during <laughs> in-game. I've tried, and I was asked to leave. See, that's the kind of shit that I like doing at the show. <laughs> you know, like, it's between that Sounds and ripping, the, ripping those little... Show, Tom. I know. Unfortunately, that is absolutely 100% accurate between us. But <laughs> between the cutting of the cutting board and the... And the ripping off of those little static clinging little bits. I mean, that's the the mess of production in my show uh, table. But uh, the thing about the Pikachu movie is I don't give a shit about Pikachu at all or Pokemons. And I see my kids, they haven't watched the movie, but they watch a show, one of the various uh, Pokemon shows. And, you know, it's it's, it's drivel that I can't even tolerate. I can't even sit there and watch it like some of their others. I I can tolerate that horrible, those horrible... uh, uh, grade D sitcoms that you always complain about that they sometimes watch in your presence. I can ha- I can tolerate that more than I can tolerate really bad anime like Pokemon. And that's I'm sorry fair. that's not a popular um, opinion among the nerd community. I just can't even. However, as an art as an artist, I fucking love Pokemon because there's a million variants of things and there's a million different colorful little bugaboos to draw. And so it's a thing I've been doing with my having kids. Having the design for that looks really interesting too. What's that? Having the time for it? The said? design of oh the- oh. Yeah, I mean, you know, I just, I love that my kids are, because my kids are really excited about it now, then I'm glad that it exists, and I'm drawing, every couple of days I draw another Pikachu, or another uh, Pokemon of their requests. Right. And so when we see this, if nothing else, because I know it's, I mean, it is what it is, but it is. I'll be interested because I think that the effects of how they've animated the, the various Pokemon look really good, and that's what I'm there for, you know? Maybe right. Ryan Reynolds will be a little fourth wall and amusing, but for the most part, I think it's just going to be a Pokemon movie. But I want to see all the little colorful bugaboos. All right, so. that's fair. But uh, okay, so that that was pretty that was pretty good. Um, crispy on the outside, I'm going to call it. Uh, and uh, we'll be talking. We have to talk about the last episode. Yes. Somehow in your journeys Somehow. before you. Yes, I leave yeah. Tuesday, so. Okay, we'll make it happen. We have, we have Monday. <laughs> Basically, okay. we'll definitely make that happen, and um, and then just imagine at some point we're going to get, we'll actually get to talk about other projects and news and other things. But yeah, that would be nice. By that point, I think they will have already happened. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> All right, buddy. We'll get back to your one thousand stickers and yes. that you don't have. <laughs> Cheers.